Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night on BBS Radio Station 1. So we're grateful you join us here. And we'd like to take a few moments to just take a few breaths and go into our heart space. I've got that tone for the evening. So just take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly and gently. Let go of that dross of the day. Go into your heart space. In your heart space, gather with your guides and guardians, your totems, your spirit teams, or healing teams, your ancestors, whoever you like to journey with that drum beat with. And there's a council fire it's in the center. Let's gather around that good fire in that circle, coming close. In that virtual way we know how to do. As I call in the seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition with the key and ground. We welcome from the East, the House of Light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the North, House of Night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. We greet from the West, the House of Transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. Let us greet from the South, the House of Eternal Sun. May right action give us the harvest, so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary beings. Welcome from above, the house of paradise, where the star people 
and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. We greet from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. We welcome from the central source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind in nature. Om Takoyas and all my relations. In Lakash Alakin, I am another you, you are another me. So, stay wherever that drum beat took you. As I take a few moments to look at the Mayan record of days for today, this new moon day, and for the week ahead. So, here we are. <laughs> Today is a red galactic human. And so it's that galactic tone is the eight tone and represents modeling, integrity, and harmonize. In Ebb, the human influence, wisdom, and free will are three key words. So here's the mantra for today with this eight ebb. And it is a portal day, as we are, have been in the portal days all week since last Saturday, and we've got four more to do. So we have the extra dimensionality. Here's, here is the mantra. I harmonize in order to influence, modeling wisdom. I feel the process of free will with the galactic tone of integrity. I am guided by the power of intelligence, which is key. And the analog today is, or our support team, is the blue hand. And our challenge teacher, the antipode, the white wind, is the challenge teacher. So in this occult energy, the spirit guide, Today is the red moon, so that's a, <clears throat> a maluk, and there you go. That's the destiny for today, and uh, yeah, let's look look at tomorrow and see. What, let's look at this just a little bit closer as far as Ed, the human. It's a healing aspect, and it's about our enlightenment of humankind. It's about activating cosmic consciousness and the tuning to spirit. 
So we have these gifts with uh, the human servant warrior and that abundance and having that contact with other dimensions. And that's definitely true since we've been in this portal energy every day since Saturday. So are you feeling it yet? (laughs) We got a lot of help from the cosmos. So let's let go of any dependence on the analytical mind as we embrace these energies for today and this evening. And let's look here at the time. I didn't write it down, but I can look of the new moon today. Oh, yeah. It's at, it was at 5.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So we're, in that, we're right in that new moon energy right now. And uh, so set your intentions for this moon cycle. And then moving on to Saturday, tomorrow, it's a nine ebb, which is the red solar Skywalker. And it's a warrior aspect, the Skywalker energy. So it's work is about focus and striving towards self-illumination, and it's about clarity. So we embrace the gifts of strength that Skywalker gives us, that ability to bend dimensions. And we're working with lots of dimensions to bend. So let's let go of any resistance to faith or any belief in aloneness as we embrace these energies on Saturday. Then moving on to Sunday, and each it's the white planetary wizard attend each. So this is a visionary aspect. As we work towards the illumination for others and work, work for clarity of mind and purpose. We embrace these gifts of that shaman energy, that jaguar medicine, that gift of integrity and working in accordance with divine will. Let's let go of any control issues, any personal power issues, any manipulation as we embrace these energies on Sunday. And then on Monday is our last of the 10 portal days in a row, our our galactic activation portals, I like to call them that. (laughs) So, yeah, so with this, this last one, Monday is a blue spectral eagle. It's 11 men the eagle. So this is a visionary aspect. So we're working with our um, commitment to service. We're moving consciousness to source. We're reconnecting with all creation, with this energy. And we have these gifts of independence and that belief in ourselves. So let's let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation or the illusion of separation. Let go of that one. And then back to normal days on Tuesday. <laughs> so we still have solar flares, probably, and more extra dimensionality from other influences. But uh, in the Mayan world, we have <clears throat> a regular day. Uh, the warrior on Tuesday is the warrior aspect. So we're trusting in our journey, and we're bringing awareness of right action with this energy. And as we do so, let's embrace these gifts of that communication with the divine, the access to cosmic consciousness. We let go of any limitation, restriction, or hesitation. 
We embrace these energies on Tuesday. Then moving on to Wednesday, we complete this wave of Kipchong and the wave of the snake, the serpent, with the <clears throat> a 13 Kaban, the red galactic, or I wrote galactic, the red cosmic earth. And Wednesdays also Valentine's Day. So we're going to love the Earth <laughs> with that this energy on Valentine's Day with the cosmic Earth. So the Earth is a healing aspect. So our work with Earth is being keeper of the Earth and awareness of Earth energy and. We get to do this on this love day of Valentine's Day. What the most permanent love relationship we have with the Earth. <laughs> so let's embrace these gifts of that access to planetary harmony and having being that balancing point and working with our intuition as as we listen. As we listen to the earth and respond to what she needs, let us let go of any separation, any failure to read the signs, or any dissociation. As we embrace these earth energies on Wednesday, that cosmic earth. So that's that promise to change as we complete this wave of the serpent, this, this wave of being in equanimity without biases on any side. Uh, we move to New Wave on Thursday, which is a one et knob, the white magnetic mirror, which is another warrior aspect. And so the guidance for this wave, oh, it's, <clears throat> I can't tell you the guidance for it because I can't read my handwriting. <laughs> <clears throat> well, we're going to stay in balance with this energy with the mirror, and we're going to look at ourselves pretty good. <laughs> it's a warrior aspect, and it's about working on groundedness and that wise use of honesty and self-understanding. So we have these gifts with Etnob, the mirror, scrying the unseen, that fluidity and that persistence. The mirror brings us. So let's let go of any illusions of separateness, any fear or abandonment, or any illusions as we embrace these energies. On Thursday, and that magnetic tone, that's that new beginning, and it's magnetic. Um, and then on Friday, we have a two kawak, which is the red lunar storm. And that two, net, two energy is about finding stability and, and opposites. So uh, we're doing that with the storm, and the storm is a visionary aspect. And it's about creating transformation for others and and lighting clear thought. So we embrace these gifts of possibility, of freedom, and power of catalyzing. As we let go of any addiction to crisis, any despair or fear or illusion of separateness. We embrace these energies on Friday, and we'll talk about it some more when we come back next week. So I'm going to change my hat and talk a little bit about the housekeeping. As we are a listener-supported radio program, it's all of us that make it happen. 
we support Tara and Rama with their needs. And we also um, take care of the, our commitment with BBS Radio for their services as well. So let's talk about BBS Radio and how we make a contribution to our account there. First, you want to go to bbsradio.com. Well, actually, first, go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. Then go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 1 on that schedule, and you'll see our listings on Radio Station 1, which is this show, The Hard News, on Friday night at the 8 o'clock hour. You'll see that listed on Friday on that menu. And then on Thursdays, we have a night at the roundtable with the panel, and that's also at the 8 o'clock hour, and these are central times. So adjust for your own time as far as listening. Um, but as you see the icon there, you click on that icon that takes you directly to our account with BBS Radio where you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. So thank you for your generosity. This week we need um, $165 to, to finish up last week and another two seventy seven seventy five for this weekend, and so we need $443.50. So we're grateful for your generosity, for your participation this way, and we are also grateful for all that BBS Radio provides us, and uh, we're grateful to pay it forward like that. And keep it happening. This is a good way to gather, and we do it each week in... We invite you to invite others to join us as well um, and participate with support that, for the work that we do. And what else? Oh, yeah, we're assisting Tar and Rama with their needs, and they really are in an emergency situation for two bills that are overdue and could get cut off. One of them is their phone and the other one's windstream. Those cannot be cut off. And so together, those are overdue. We need $313.27 to cover those two bills. And then they have the GEICO bill due on Monday, which is like has to be paid on Monday. There's, there's no lapsing on the, uh, the car insurance there. So that's another $104.89. cents. So what they need in emergency funds right now is $418.16. So, yes, go dig in deep, see what you can do, and even if you can only spare a little, do it. <laughs> we got we got to keep these folks so that they don't have to worry about high blood pressure from not having the bills paid. So we want them healthy, and we want it, we would like want to honor them in this way for the work that they do. And also, they have two more bills um, that need to be paid shortly, and that brings it up to uh, $695. It's roughly $700 in total is what Tara and Rama are needing to get these bills paid and out of the way and ready to roll for the rest of the month. So, in a good way. Uh, so, thank you, thank you, thank you for your kind consideration. 
in making um, immediate contributions for these bills that are due, um, the 418 right away, and the rest of them shortly after, thereafter. <laughs> so thank you for to Tyra and Rama for all that they do. We're grateful to be able to support them this way and in a good way. Uh, so lots of gratitude to all of you for picking in, doing what you can do in a good way. And here's how we make that contribution. You want to access the, um, the donate link, the PayPal account for Rainbow Roundtable, and you'll find that link at the website, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the homepage, you'll, you'll see as you click on a menu grid that will be near the bottom of that list of donate links. And as you are on a regular computer, it's on the right-hand side. Uh, you'll see that donate link there. So click on that. That'll take you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And you'll Make that money go a little bit further. You want to access the friends option, the gifting option, where you don't pay the commercial charges because it's not anything you're buying. It's something you're supporting. Um, so this you need this email address to make that access as you put that in the gifting line, the, the email, this email. So here it goes. Write this down. Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com and as you do that then we won't have to pay the extra commercial charges that don't apply to us anyway we're all family here <laughs> so thank you for taking that action we're grateful for your contributions and um, if you've never done the friends option before and you have any trouble finding it because they don't make it easy to find particularly but they will. That's the first time you do it. They will make it easy. If it's your first time, you can always go to the support section on PayPal, and they'll show you how to do it. You just click on how to make a gift, and they'll show you how to do that. So that's the way you do it, and we're grateful for your contributions. We're grateful for all the ways you show up in your lives. So uh, as you're sending a contribution, we would like you to send an email to Rama and let him know what you sent. That email address for Rama is Koran999 at Comcast.net. And let him know what you sent and when you sent it so he can <laughs> breathe easy. And then... Um, what else? Yeah, as you need it, especially as you're sending emergency funds for the money that needs to be paid right away. Uh, you might need the mailing address. So here it is. Rom D. Berkowitz. R-A-M-D. Berkowitz. B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box 280280. And that's in Santa Cruz. In New Mexico, zip code is 87567, and I'll say it again. Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information, and oh, so much gratitude for all your contributions. 
We really appreciate it. We appreciate all of you. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. And I'm passing this talking stick, and oh, my God, it's got lots of fairies and feathers, and they are all celebrating the new arrival of the Greenwood Dragon. It is green. It is wooden. It has lots of scales, and for Black History Month, it's got a lot of ebony scales mixed in there and all kinds of beautiful other natural woods like mahogany Red oak, and just representing all the peoples with that green head and tail and and feet. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this really special talking stick with the the greenwood dragon, looking really, really pretty. Welcome. Greetings, everyone. Greetings. Happy New Moon. Yes, today. And we are moving into the age of Aquarius as of today. No. Oh. We did already on we, the 20th of January, 2024. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're really the, uh, the old paradigm... The karmic wheel is gone. No more karma on planet Earth. And the ones that are carrying a big load are going for a ride yes. off the Earth. And they do not, that song, oh, they never return, no, they never return, and their fate is still unlearned. <laughs> and also, uh, that means that John Stewart is coming on a special uh, Steve Colbert show on Sunday night, 11 o'clock our time, mountain time. So that would be 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, Monday morning, East, Eastern time, and everything in the between. But he hasn't been on anywhere in sight for quite a few years now. Mm -hmm. And he is a Faction 3 White Knight. He represents that. It's time for Nassara Law to be enacted publicly. What do you say to that, Rama? Inshallah. <laughs> All right. And... Um, so the new moon is exactly at 5.59 p.m. That's when it occurred uh, early this evening in Eastern time. So, and I'm sure that Richard will cover, along with Tanya Gabrielle, all the nuances of the astrology for that new moon. Yeah, this is, this is a big new moon. There were three X-Class flares in the last few days. And the energies are way, way up there. Way, way up there. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe it, but all the folks, all the beings from all the multiverses are here. To help. 
And today, the appeals court rejected Trump's immunity claim. Yeah. So that went out the window. And regarding the January 6th case, it's on hold until the immunity uh, situation is fully resolved. It's not a question of if, it's when. When that's completely resolved, then we're in the place where uh, the January 6th case is on on the board, you might say. Yeah. And we've been hearing everything in the book about insurrection. And we're just going to say that the Supreme Court is quite compromised here. It is. So we send more love and we blaze the violet fire because that's got to change. And uh, we have a few uh, galactic interventions to make that so. Right, Rama? Yeah. And the most important thing is that we we, we do what we do. Uh, since the... Uh, the, um, the Kali Yuga age, which was a 26,826-year cycle of a karmic age, of all the things for the last 4 billion years, and in another, another level, 450 billion years mm-hmm. of conscious awareness in time and space comes to a major shift now. And Western propaganda means people always oppose the last war, yet not the war that's currently being pushed. The United States provoking and sustaining its Ukraine proxy war, meaning that Zelensky start, uh, was the the fall guy, you might say, but he did it willingly for a lot of money. He's got a $35 million home in Florida, Miami, somewhere down there, not far from that Mar-a-Lago place. (laughs) Oh, dear. So the United States, uh, with its Ukraine proxy war, is no more ethical than its invasion of Iraq, It just looks that way due to the propaganda. It is only by copious amounts of propaganda that our civilization is being hammered with that, that this is not immediately obvious to everyone. In other words, wake up, wake up. Wake up, adolescent souls. Wake up, toddler souls. Wake up. In the future, assuming we do not annihilate ourselves first, and the interventions making sure that we don't get to do that, the air enough for people to look back with clarity on 2022 and realize that they were lied to yet again, uh, not to mention 2023. It's easy to oppose the last war. It's hard to oppose current wars. 
as the propaganda machine is shoving them down our throats. Everyone is anti-war until the war propaganda starts. So that was an interesting piece I wanted to share with you. And then uh, this is from the past. I think it happened on May 18, 2022. Former President George W. Bush said, the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. He's talking to the public. And then he says right after that, I mean of Ukraine. George W. Bush said that on May 18, 2022. I'm reading it right here. Uh, War is never the answer. Right? Yeah. Peace is always the answer. War is over, as John Lennon said, if you want it. That's right. World peace now. Okay, and so tonight Rama's report is, Rama's speaking, he says, I went and sat with 16 deer, five crows, and Charlie, the caretaker, at the I Am Sanctuary in Santa Fe. It was 12.08 p.m. early this afternoon. They all said to me, animals, birdies, and, and Charlie, they all said to me, through either intuitiveness or spoken, uh, Lord Rama, the energies again are extremely, extremely high. As Rama said earlier, there were three X-class solar flares. X-class are as high as you can go, right? Yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, and uh, it happened in the last 48 hours. Two yesterday and one today. So, today we entered the new moon, as we said, 5.59 p.m. Eastern Time, early this evening. Our galactic friends are here for the duration. As we say, when John Stewart shows up, we're in the window for enacting publicly the Sar law. Let's blaze the violet fire. And thank you for your contributions ahead of time yes, to keep us you. going and stay on the air with BBS Radio. Their service is invaluable at this time reaching tens of thousands at least. Uh, so call them in every day, these energies. They are in our skies, the galactic friends. Call them in too. How we can connect with them is through our third eye. We send out the energy and you visualize a blazing star in your third eye. As you continue to look at that in your third eye, you will see your friends and family from the stars. We are in that period of our spiritual development where our gifts and abilities are manifesting. Call in the force. You will know what to do next. See you in the light of the most radiant one, Sat Nam. Okay, so 
Okay, what's that? Yes, Rama wants to play something for all of us. This is Aurora Ray. We, we've officially entered the golden age of Aquarius, a historic turning point. Eight minutes, everybody. The long wait is over. We've officially entered the golden age of Aquarius. This is an electrifying time for us. Earth's slow wobble on its axis causes the vernal equinox to shift between constellations over a 26,000 year cycle known as the astrological ages. This cyclical phenomenon known as the precession of the equinoxes is the result of gravitational forces exerted by the sun and moon on Earth's equatorial bulge. As our planet rotates and orbits around the sun, this gravitational interplay causes its axis to trace out a slow circular motion over thousands of years. Consequently, the vernal equinox gradually shifts against the backdrop of the zodiac, marking the transition from one astrological age to the next. On January 20, 2024, we transitioned from the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. This date marks our official entry into the golden age of Aquarius, a period heralded by profound spiritual awakening and enlightenment. Additionally, it coincides with the year of the dragon, symbolizing resilience, guidance, and the unleashing of dormant powers within us. This new era represents a shift to more humanitarian values, scientific advancement, and spiritual enlightenment. The previous age of Pisces was associated with structured religions and institutions. But now, in the age of Aquarius, we are moving towards personal spirituality, freedom, and equality. Rigid hierarchies and establishments will be questioned. People will take more responsibility for their own lives and well-being. This new era is sometimes called the information age due to rapid developments in technology, science, and communication. Digital connectivity allows information and ideas to spread rapidly around the globe. More revolutionary inventions and discoveries are expected. Socially, movements for justice, environmentalism, and human rights have been accelerating. Tolerance for diversity, creative self-expression, and questioning the status quo are on the rise. The value systems and lifestyles of the future will be more open, fluid, and decentralized. The coming times may be turbulent as old structures crumble, but globally, consciousness is poised to expand to the fifth dimension in extraordinary ways. If we can maintain compassion while dismantling limiting systems, an age of enlightenment awaits the return of the dragons. Dragons have been a prominent symbol across many ancient cultures and mythologies. Often depicted as powerful, wise creatures, dragons represent the primordial and elemental forces of nature and the universe. Their image adorns artifacts, temples, and stories in civilizations across the world, from east to west. The returning of dragons in this current age represents a resurgence of our connection to these natural forces within and around us. The return of the dragons signals it is time for humanity to awaken our own inner spiritual power. The power that comes from being in harmony with the natural flow of life 
mythology suggests dragons guide humanity during monumental shifts in human consciousness. Their presence helps activate latent parts of ourselves and pierce the veil of illusion that keeps us separated from the truth. With the dragon's help, we shed limiting beliefs and programming passed down through the ages. We step into our sovereignty and take responsibility for who we choose to be. Dragons awaken our courage and capacity to transform. They prompt us to own our shadow self, the parts of us we deny or suppress. By shedding light on our darkness with compassion, we can alchemize and integrate these energies within us. This makes us whole. The return of the dragons may feel intensely personal for some. We may have vivid dreams or visions of dragons reaching out across time and space to make contact. For others, dragons represent a new paradigm and worldview that compels us to live in greater harmony with the planet. Either way, the dragon's presence in this golden age brings great opportunity. By welcoming their return, we welcome back parts of our deepest selves. We regain access to gifts and talents that lay dormant within us. The dragons remind us of our reason for being here now to fully awake and take our place as steward of the new earth, leaving the three matrix behind. Despite the beckoning call of ascension, many of us find ourselves trapped in the three cycle of complacency and stagnation. We prioritize comfort over growth, clinging to familiar patterns and resisting change. However, true evolution requires us to embrace discomfort, to step out of our comfort zones, and to actively engage in the process of expansion. The three matrix refers to the fear-based limited reality that humanity has been trapped in for millennia. This rigid matrix operates through strict structures and hierarchies designed to keep us small and disconnected from our divine nature. Signs that we are transitioning out of the three matrix and into five include increased intuition and psychic abilities, a desire for more meaning, purpose, and authenticity. An urge to break free from old paradigms and systems. Heightened creativity and imagination. A sense of awakening to your latent spiritual gifts. Feeling more peace, unconditional love, and unity with all beings. To release ourselves fully from the limiting beliefs of the three matrix, we must Identify where we are playing small and holding ourselves back. Heal our inner child's limiting core wounds. Practice present. Moment awareness. Release judgment of self and others. Foster acceptance and gratitude. Connect to our heart's wisdom over the egoic mind. Follow our soul's excitement with courage. The more we unwind from three matrix conditioning, the faster our energy vibration rises. We reclaim our sovereign divine blueprint as awakened co-creators in five consciousness. A whole new future awaits us. As we move forward into the fifth dimension, let us carry with us the lessons of the past and the visions of the future. Let us honor the guidance of the dragons and the wisdom of the cosmos as we navigate the unexplored pathways of ascension. And let us remember that we are not alone on this journey, for we are supported and surrounded by the loving embrace of the universe. If you're ready to facilitate the greatest shift of your life, 
now during this window of accelerated growth opportunity to set the tone for the age of Aquarius, I'm taking a handful of new students on a magical ascension activation journey, starting on March 4, 2024. If you're interested, raise your hand and put your email address on the waitlist. ATEPS, Ascension Activation Training. This will be the most epic journey you've ever embarked on. This is my promise to you. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. This. Okay, everybody, we are the Galactic Federation. We all are. Okay, Rama, how about you give us uh, the phone numbers? Uh, 720-716-7301, and the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, one more time, hon. 720-716-7301, and the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. So we will see you here at this number, at this conference call, and we'll stay together for the next hour. We always do some really good work. Uh, join us, folks, uh, new people, as you choose. And Coran9999 at Hotmail.com. Thank you for your contributions. It's a great time to be alive and aware that we are moving into this Aquarian age. No more suffering. No more infinite samsara. Okay. See you on the conference, everybody. And then at the at the beginning of the very next hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio. Station one tonight. Namaste.
Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. As the beings of light from our grand central sun and the I am presence of each and every one of us 
continue to help us gently assimilate the brand new frequencies of light we now have access to. We are becoming more consciously aware of what the company of heaven meant when they revealed that in 2024, humanity will co-create miracles. In October of 2023, prior to Mother Earth's ascension through the 11-11-11 gateway on November 11th, 2023, we experienced a powerful eclipse series that provided awakening humanity with a unique opportunity to raise our consciousness to a higher level. Now, each and every one of us is able to comprehend far more easily just what the oneness of all life truly means. This is true whether or not we have taken the time to go within and to listen intuitively to this truth, which is now pulsating in our heart flame. Because of the frequency of vibration Mother Earth is now abiding in, our individual and our collective vibrations have increased to a level that is allowing us to tap into new sacred knowledge. This divine wisdom is now revealing the oneness of all life more consciously and more practically than we have previously experienced. Our Father, Mother, God, and the company of heaven said this divine intervention is not happening by chance. It is happening because of the urgency of the hour and the critical phase of the divine plan that Mother Earth has now entered. In 2024, in the United States of America, and in several other countries around the world, there will be vitally important elections that will affect humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth more profoundly than ever before. If the masses of humanity who are affected by these elections will choose to participate through their I am presence and the collective I am presence of every person on earth, the highest good for all concerned will be co-created through the unified efforts of heaven and earth. The fragmented and fear-based consciousness of people participating in past elections usually involved a very toxic us versus them attitude that is now obsolete and is no longer functional. It is counterproductive for us to do battle with this distorted and obsolete consciousness. Instead, we must transcend the illusion of separation and align our collective I am presences with the beings of light in the realms of illumined truth. This divine intervention will allow us to participate in our elections from the very highest comprehension of the oneness 
and reverence for all life. The beings of light from our grand central sun are joining us today as we invoke the light of God and transcend the obsolete patterns of separation and duality. The additional beings of light who are helping us orchestrate this monumental facet of the divine plan are the mighty Elohim, Saint Germain and Lady Portia, El Moria and Lady Miriam, Archangel Michael and Lady Faith, Micah, the angel of unity, La Moray, keeper of the flame of harmony and the majestic goddesses of liberty, justice, freedom, victory, glory, and oneness. All of these representatives of our Father Mother God are now standing in readiness. If you have the heart call to do so, please join with lightworkers around the world in oneness with reverence for all life. And together, we will invoke the patterns of perfection for divine government in preparation for the elections in 2024. These patterns consist of a government of the I am presence, by the I am presence, and for the I am presence of every son and daughter of God on earth. And we begin. I am going within to the divinity of my heart flame. There I kneel before the altar of love and surrender my lower human consciousness to the perfection of my I am presence. My I am presence is taking full dominion of my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies, and also my thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. The beings of light from our grand central sun and my I am presence will now guide me through this activity of light. I am my I am presence and I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with my father, mother, God, and I am one with the legions of light from the grand central sun. I am one with all of the legions of light associated with divine government from all time frames and dimensions, both known and unknown. Blessed ones, blaze the most intensified frequencies of divine will comprehensive divine love and divine enlightenment from the very heart of our father mother god into the heart flame of every person 
who is now or will be in the future involved with the governments of earth in any way. Awaken every one of these people to the profound opportunity and the awesome responsibility they have during this cosmic moment. Enlighten everyone to the profound truth that it is time for divine government to manifest now. Let each person that is now or ever will be responsible for the governments of the world in any way to tangibly feel and experience the power, love, and enlightenment of our Father, Mother, God flowing through their heart flame. This will allow the sacred knowledge about the oneness of all life to surface into their conscious mind in a new and much more tangible way. We now invoke the I am presence of every one of these people to take full dominion of their thoughts, feelings, words, actions, beliefs, and memories. Empower that person to hear and to listen to the intuitive inner guidance of their I am presence, which will guide them unerringly toward the fulfillment of their individual and collective divine plans in their mission of co-creating divine government on earth. The company of heaven is now revealing that with Mother Earth's ascension into the full embrace of our grand central sun, humanity's consciousness has been elevated to a level that will allow the patterns for divine government to be raised to a higher frequency than we have ever experienced. The patterns of perfection for divine government are now pulsating with brand new frequencies, qualities, colors, musical tones, fragrances, and patterns of perfection from our grand central sun. Humanity is able to access these patterns of perfection now for the very first time. I now invoke the representatives of our Father, Mother, God from the sons beyond sons in Earth's lineage. This includes our grand central son, our great, great central son, our great central son, our central son, and our physical son. Blessed ones, come forth now. Blaze your great power, comprehensive divine love, and unity consciousness through your solar light codes into every 
facet of the government of the United States of America at national, state, and local levels. Expand this activity of light into every facet of government in every country of the world. Hold every man, woman, and child in your loving embrace and infuse each one with divine truth of oneness, God's will, divine love, enlightenment, and reverence for all life. Now, throughout the universe, the cosmic bell of liberty is ringing, signaling that the matrix and the archetypes for the divine government associated with the fifth dimensional crystalline solar new earth are now pulsating in all of their glory in the realms of cause. This matrix and the divine archetypes are securing the reality of divine government of the I am presence, by the I am presence, and for the I am presence of every person on earth. I feel the stargate of my heart now opening to full breath. I am an instrument of God. I am serving on behalf of all humanity and all life on this blessed planet. From the deepest recesses of my heart, within the divinity of my fifth dimensional I am presence, I decree, I am the open door that no one can shut. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life of the patterns of perfection for divine government. Through my I am presence, the I am presence of all humanity, the entire company of heaven, and my Father, Mother, God, I now command I am assimilating the matrix and archetypes for the brand new fifth dimensional patterns of divine government now pulsating in the realms of cause. Through the unified efforts of heaven and earth, divine government is now being co-created and sustained breath by breath through the divine grace of my Father, Mother God. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Let the love of God be manifest in, through, and around 
all of the governments of the world, now and forever. And so it is, beloved I am that I am. Dear one, God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week. Welcome to this Temple of Sekhmet transmission. Healing, transforming a seemingly irresolvable issue. And just getting comfortable with your open body, open mind. Taking a long, slow, deep breath into the body. And with that breath coming to the core of your being, perhaps feeling it in the heart or in the belly. And just continuing with that cycle of breath on the in-breath inviting light into your physical body light from the star nation light from the sun into your physical body the bones the blood the cells and anywhere you are holding denser energies from the 3d matrix the world around you that you've picked up absorbed on the out breath, just ask your body consciousness to release any dense energies in the body back to the light, back to the universe. Just giving a bit more space in your physical body for your own natural light. The in breath is the invitation of light, the out breath is the purging and releasing of lower energies to increase the overall vibration of your physical body. And also inviting light into the emotional body, a fluid field of energy that surrounds and penetrates the physical body. raising the vibration of your emotional body and giving permission for any denser energies in the emotional body to leave on the out-breath. 
Just imagine sending them back to the light of the sun and the stars on the out-breath. Purging them from your emotional field. Allowing more light, more fluidity in the emotional body. And also inviting light on the in-breath into the mental body a fluid field of energy that surrounds and penetrates the emotional and physical bodies. Just raising the vibration of your mental body, the mind, and again on the out-breath, purging and releasing anything you've picked up in the mental body, other people's opinions or ideas that do not serve you, other people's judgments or projections that you picked up and absorbed in the mental body. Purge and release on the out-breath. Just allowing more space in your mental body for your own natural light. And as you follow the cycle of breath, I call your teams in spirit of the highest light and resonance, including your higher selves from the sixth dimension to the 12th dimension, all angels, archangels working with you, all star beings, star races, star councils working with you, all ascended beings and guides working with you all specialist teams in spirit working with you. Let's call them to come be with you now, to come be with you now. And just feeling that connection in your crown chakra, all the way down to your toes, perhaps your fingertips. And let's call the archangels of the horizontal plane. And we begin in the east with Raphael, archangel of air. And the symbol of this angel is a crystal wand and the energy is emerald green fire. Just call to mind that symbol of that crystal wand. And just allow this emerald green fire to begin to surround and hold you, particularly your mind. Allowing your mind to float on a higher frequency energy. Raising the vibration of every thought. To the south is Michael, Archangel of the Element of Fire, Archangel of the Will. The symbol is a sword of flaming blue light. And the energy of this angel is electric blue fire. Just taking a moment to focus on that symbol of light, that sword of light. 
as you do so, inviting the energy of this angel to begin to infuse your energy field with electric blue fire. Holding your will, aligning your will with the higher self. And just float on these energies, allowing your whole vibration to shift. And let's call to the West, to Archangel Gabriel of emotions of water. The symbol of this angel is a silver chalice. And the energy is diamond white fire. Again, focusing your mind for a moment on the symbol, this chalice, this cup of silver. And as you do so, inviting the angel's energy into your field to hold your space, especially your emotional energy. So that your emotional body can begin to float on that higher vibration. Good. And to the north, completing the circle of the horizontal plane, is Uriel, Archangel of Earth, of the physical body. The symbol of this angel is a golden pentacle, a five-pointed star in a circle of light. And this angel holds the energy of ruby red fire. Again, bringing to mind that symbol that golden five-pointed star in a circle of light. And as you do so, inviting the angel's energy to hold you, uplifting your physical body so that you can float on this energy. Just breathing and opening four angelic energies, fires holding you. raising your vibration, protecting you in this transmission. And let's call to the vertical force plane, Metatron and Sandophon. And calling to Metatron from the great central sun of Sirius. Calling and invoking the ascension grid, the Christ grid, the cosmic Christ grid of golden white fire. Calling that down through the crystalline core of our sun. Down into this dimension of the earth plane. down into the structure that you are meditating in, into the walls, the floor, the ceiling, the doors, the windows, increasing the overall vibration of the whole space, 
and let's also call to Sandophon of the crystalline grid of the earth, the diamond white crystalline grid. To invoke that grid of light up towards the feet. Up into the legs. Up into the base and pelvic area. Grounding your whole energy. So six archangels and six energies. And just floating on those energies being held in this sacred space. Let's also invoke the goddess Sekhmet and all ascended beings and angels working with Sekhmet. And these beings of light create a crystal tetrahedron around you. golden orange crystal tetrahedron around you that begins to lift you from this time and space, transport you from this time and space to another time, to another dimension. And we're journeying to an Egyptian temple in the higher dimensions. Allowing this crystal tetrahedron to land in this temple of light. And begins to dissolve around you and just notice this temple, perhaps a fiery light in the temple. A large temple with pillars either side, decorated in the classic Egyptian style. At one end of this temple, is a great fire and behind that fire a door that leads to another section of the temple. Go towards that door and through the door you'll find another section, a larger section that's open to the sky in the centre. Around this section of the temple is a balcony. And at one end of this space is a large statue of the goddess Sekhmet. Go enter that space.
go towards the statue. And as you approach the statue, the presence of the goddess, the fiery presence of the goddess begins to fill the statue. And Sekhmet is the goddess of the sun, lady of fire. She's also known as the guardian of the gateway of rebirth. She's a fierce and also very loving energy, protecting her own, those loyal to her. She is warrior, hunter and healer. Just feeling the presence of this goddess filling the statue, beginning to radiate a golden fiery light from the statue. And the eyes of the statue begin to turn a ruby red. And the statue begins to emit a scent of frankincense, myrrh, copal and red sandalwood that begins to fill the whole space. Ascended beings of light begin to fill the balconies around the edges of the temple. And take a breath and bring to mind the issue. This seemingly irresolvable issue, this challenge. Tell the goddess now all of the aspects of this challenge that she needs to know. And then step to one side. And in the center of the temple, in this open space, begins to form some metaphorical representation of the issue, perhaps a garden or landscape. just allowing the scene to arise before you. And the goddess begins to appear in her human form with a lion head, stepping out of the statue. She begins to enter the center of this metaphorical representation of the issue, perhaps a garden or landscape. And she begins to call out any hidden energies that are under or behind this issue. And some of these denser energies or patterns or programs may be ancestral or originate in another lifetime. She calls them out and they may appear as denser energies, perhaps even as small creatures, perhaps as seemingly dangerous creatures, perhaps snakes or scorpions or some other form.
Any beings that can be released to their own evolutionary journey can be released now. As the ascended beings around the balcony begin to create a portal of light, releasing any creatures or energies that need to be released to their own evolutionary journey. And segment may invoke a column of fiery light to go deep into the core of this issue, deep into this garden or landscape. Allowing this fiery light to go deep into the earth beneath this landscape. Allowing the goddess to clear what needs to be cleared. Burning in this fire what needs to be burned and purged through all minds, all bodies, all timelines, all incarnations, all dimensions, all universes. Burning anything interfering. A column of fiery light, perhaps more than one, going deep into the core of this issue. Feeling the clearing also in your own body as this fire begins to clear up the scene before you. Burning and purging and releasing. Once this is done, the goddess asked you to focus on what you'd love instead, if this issue were healed and totally transformed. What qualities, what kind of spaciousness or freedom or joy or play or love or connection would you like to be present?
And she invites you to step into the garden. And as you focus on these qualities, the goddess begins to evoke and create a new, higher level of garden landscape or metaphorical representation. It represents a complete healing or transformation of this issue. And all the beings of light around the edge of the temple also assisting in this process. And just notice the garden, landscape, or metaphorical representation begin to become transformed into something perhaps more peaceful, more beautiful, more loving, more magical. Begin to explore the space as it's transformed. Touching perhaps plants or flowers or whatever is here. Getting a feel for this space being completely transformed. Just feeling the essence of this transformation in your own body.
And perhaps the goddess invites a kind of gentler light into the space, perhaps a pink light, a more loving light into the space. Just noticing and appreciating the transformation. And then the goddess turns and returns back to the statue, becomes one with the statue. Leaving you in the garden or landscape or space, just to enjoy the space. presence of the goddess leaves the temple. And the beings of light again create a crystal tetrahedron around you a fiery orangey golden crystal tetrahedron. Bringing you back to this time and space, to this time and space. As you come back to this time and space, just floating on these newer energies, the shift in your body, just enjoying that shift now. And very gradually, the crystal tetrahedron begins to dissolve. Bringing you completely back to this time space, back to your body. Just take a breath. 
as I thank all beings working with this transmission, your teams in spirit of the highest light and resonance, all of the archangels holding the space, horizontal and vertical space, the goddess Sekhmet, and all beings working with her. And this transmission is offered to you, as always, with love and blessings, love and blessings. and blessings everyone we are all servants of peace Greetings, Mother. Greetings. In the light of the most radiant one, in the office of the Christ, and only in the office of the Christ, we invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the Violet Flame. We ask at this time, in gratitude, uh, for the highest good of all concern to happen here regarding, as Amy calls it, the war and peace report. May it be the peace report, henceforward. And as John Lennon said, war is over. If you want it. <laughs> what do you say, Mother? Pass the talking stick. Indeed. It is time for divine government, as Patty was saying. Everything is moving 
so much higher into that state of awareness. This fiasco that is currently taking place is about the old timeline going away to find government being brought in. It is a challenge to be here. It is again these bodies this time we're in. It is amazing to be here at this time in these temples of radiance. It's a rare opportunity to shift the ages and we're doing it in spite of the best efforts of the dark side to stop it. They are need more love. Maybe dying for a bath. <laughs> dirty birds on dirty pashats. Yes. <laughs> need to put them in the river. The river? Yes. Wash them clean. The river of light that's uh, pouring in. Yeah. From Grand Central Sun, Great Central Sun. This is this time where Aquarius comes into play. Humanitarian efforts are in our face. It's very auspicious time to be here on the planet. And a challenging, precarious time. So many energies pouring in to shift the old and try as they may. The, the light has won. Let's put it that way. It is um let's say As Howard Zinn on your planet said, can't be neutral 
on a moving train. <laughs> Yet, the neutrality comes with the awareness that there is a new reality pouring in and it is about compassion and love, kindness. It is much easier to shift the timelines with peace and love rather than violence or war. And we have seen so many civilizations come and go across so many universes upon universes. This grand story of multiverses interacting with each other at this time is a most unique opportunity for us to get to know our friends and family across the spectrum of light years. Not all of us have horns or fangs. <laughs> Although it might have been portrayed that way on this world, it's getting past stereotypes. This civilization a bit uh, fixed on that stuff. Mm. And it is because of what happened so long ago when we got intrigued with our fallen egos and power without love. It's quite a trip to behold. Right at this time, the old structures that are made of matchsticks still trying to hold on with their ideas. Mm, not uh, doing so well with that, mother. No, the people are waking up on this planet. Mm. Divine will is coming into play. It is thy will be done. And it is not with an iron fist. It is with love, compassion, kindness, wisdom. 
like this Lord make me an instrument of thy peace where there is such hatred left me so long the vibrations that are pouring in as the sun continues to uplift this planet all the other planets it's a grand symphony of this orchestration of light we can say with great certainty we have moved into that reality which is the fifth dimension with it comes new gifts new abilities awareness at the same time same breath gotta watch what we say what we do because it shows up just like that instantaneously and even though they parade these so-called people of power before us try to twist the heart and the mind said more law <laughs> it's a challenge when you say or see Miss Clinton or Mr. Trump oh. and what we have before us we have asked for the biggest gift we can give, which is love to souls that have made choices for better, for worse, in their own consciousness. Everybody has a choice when they come here. This is not a prison planet. It is a garden of Eden. We're only just beginning to wake up to that fact. And it is what is spoken of is we are in the realm of effects. What we think from the realm of cause shows up right here, right now. And this is the discipline how to use the wisdom that all the kingdom queendom of heaven have given us in the forms of meditation, kundalini yoga, how to move the body, mind, spirit, 
like we heard last night, the plant medicines have a way how to shift you out of this reality into the non-ordinary reality so you can look at your stuff and some of it's not so pretty gotta fix it how you fix it is loving it even more even if you're in a position of one of these life forms that is portrayed on the screen with so much power they don't know what to do with it except to get stuck in the matrix and play with the energies not in a good way it's this let's say it is the dichotomy of many worlds coming together at once and we get to figure out what reality we want to get to play in we choose to be in the realm of love and balance kindness compassion as his holiness speaks of my religion is kindness <laughs> yes it is a bit it is a bit hard to believe coming from a warrior goddess's words yet how you deal with this is love it even more that's how you break through the ego oh no we've got gotta be on our way hey oh we're just enjoying everything mother um I feel so sure that um we are moving very quickly towards uh, a world public announcement. I I just want to say is got to be a reason why Steve Colbert is having a special show at eleven o'clock at night on Sunday night, and he's and having uh, John Stewart as a special appearance on that show. What is going on? It has to do with the fact that we are 90 seconds to midnight and nobody's going to push any buttons. That's for sure. The fear factor is the thing that is call it psychic warfare 
which the dark side is good at. And time to put the the axe and the sword. Time to turn them into a hole and a rake so we can continue in this garden of Eden. I, I agree. Yes. Odd sword or a double-bladed axe doesn't work quite well when you want to plant some seeds. <laughs> like the Hopi speak of a planting stick. The kernels of corn, the three sisters, the beans, the squash, the chilies in this area of the land of El Dorado. It is about these sacred wisdom that's contained within Mother Gaia Thywamas. As we listen to her, she will tell us the next step, what to do with this age of Aquarius on its way here. Time to have a moment of reflection of what a golden age is about. No war. What a concept. There are other civilizations throughout our Milky Way galaxy that have never had war. Inconceivable within the eyes of love. Why would you do something so illogical? <laughs> Yet, it is about this growth process we ask to step into, to experience it. It might sound insane, yet it is, it is what is before us, place of violent fire, greetings, in the, in the light, light of, of the most radiant world, kadosh, 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 Adonai, Shavayo, kadosh, 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 Adonai, Namaste, Mother. 
Aloha, Mother. Until we meet again, Mother. <sighs> Just give a moment now for Rama to come back into his body. Hello, Rama. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. Where did you go? Mount Kailash. Ah. To, yeah, get some Shakti pot from Lord Shiva. <laughs> did you get it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got my dose and my third eye. It's, but it's throbbing. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> not a headache, but it's like there. It's like what everybody's feeling from these solar flares that your head is, you know, getting squeezed gently like a vice. And not a pleasant thought, but it's kind of what we're going through. <laughs> and um, it's a good thing. I I, I get that because this is how we ascend. It, and ascension is not painful. Yet it is about experiencing all the love you can hold and more in these cells and uh, sometimes these cells are um, just gotta absorb more light and breathe through it <laughs> it's not always fun well we we're still here we're still here. And we know that we all we all know it now that something's up in the zoo, you might say. Yeah. The fur has been ruffled. On the feathers and the feathers too. Yeah. Yes, and uh, no turning back. No. No. And I suspect this is going quite quickly. You said, Mother said 90 seconds to midnight. <laughs> yeah. That's. It is. Um, it is precarious because there's all these stories about. Um, major conflicts on the planet and the forces of light tell a different story and I uh, go with that and I pass the talking stick <laughs> well 
Mm. May we proceed in good mm. order now. Um, um, Where are we going? How about we start with uh, superpower, ignite your intuitive intelligence. Yeah, it sounds good to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is uh, mm. that uh, Star Trek uh, Engage the Akashic Field. Mm. Patrick Stewart Engage. Mm. <laughs> this is featuring Dr. Joe Gallenberger, Jesse Holmander, David Lyon, Miranda. McPherson, Penny, Pen, Penny Pierce, David Salvage, and Dr. Susan Shumsky, Dr. Scott Taylor, and Susan Wilson. Ex explore how to tap into this, the rich Akashic field of knowledge and receive the answers to get into the flow of life. Learn how to trust the information and follow through with intuitive hits. Okay, this is uh, 37 minutes. We'll just get started. Here we go. My ability to empathize is not special. We are all doing it all the time. I teach people how to receive intuition at will, not just at the whimsy of fate or something. You are an intuitive being. That is your birthright as a child of the source. I just want all of us who are already doing it to go, yay, we're doing it. And this is cool that we're doing it. And it's helping people. single one of us has intuition you know everyone's intuitive everyone's empathic most people just don't listen to it because they don't know that your intuition is like your soul's whisper it's sort of like if you got a brand new car and it came fully loaded but you never used any of the accessories you never turned on the satellite radio you never tried the fancy gps same thing here with people that don't use their intuition. Intuition means connecting with our higher self and receiving divine messages, receiving wisdom, inspiration, healing, receiving answers to our questions and concerns. We are merging our non-physical self and reality with the physical self and reality, realizing that the spiritual is inside the physical. It's always been inside the physical, but we haven't been looking for it We've been looking for it out there somewhere, and it's not. It's right here. I often say to people, you know, think about that day when you met somebody who became your best friend or your husband or your wife. 
someone who is incredibly important to you. Did any one of us wake up that morning and go, all right, law of attraction, I'm going to meet my love of my life today. I'm going to meet my best friend. No, we were going about our ordinary business, buying our coffee in the same place we always do, or we just happen to go to some event or party or workshop. And, you know, you just you sit next to somebody and you smile and you just like them right away. And there's this sweetness or this buzz between you or this connection and it just brings you into such a beautiful warm place and even though you don't know any the details about that person you love them right away what makes that so what moves your life magnetically to that person in that moment at that time at that point in your path it's as if that there's this force that knows what we need better than we do Master intuitive, what does that mean? For me, master intuitive is that I, I, I just experience a lot of clarity. You know, so a lot of people get lost in what people call the monkey mind or the chattery mind. I don't have that in my head. You know, I don't talk in my head. I don't get stuck in my head. I only receive intuition. It's very easy for me to know how to navigate myself through life or when I'm helping someone, I could uh see what to say without giving my own opinion or bias. It's really just what comes to me through source. If you want to call it source, if you want to call it your higher self. The more open my heart is, the more available I am to what's going on around me and the more I know what people need. I guess another way of thinking about it is what is the intuition for? For whatever reason, I have not yet been gifted with the ability to know what's going to happen in the future. Um, My intuition tends to be like more like therapeutic. Like I know what people need emotionally, therapeutically. The work that we're here to do is all about identifying your unique gifts and bringing them forward and leveraging them to bring a little bit of heaven to earth, to be in service to others, to be in service to your own soul, to also give and receive, and notice I say receive, give and receive as much compassion as humanly possible. And that takes a leap of faith unless you tap into your intuition. You tap into your intuition and all of a sudden, there's no longer any faith or trust required. It simply is. Look at those places where you do things that people think are awesome, but that you tend to dismiss as trivial. We think that because something is easy for us, we don't deserve credit for it. But actually, the easier something is for us, I don't know about the more credit we deserve, but the more attention that deserves. That's where your gift often lies. So be extra attentive to those things you do that are super easy for you, because that's magic. I think our intuitive stuff is really a deep survival skill. Survival might be natural, right? Going to sleep is natural. What do you do when you go to sleep? You say, gee, I'm tired. I think I'll go to sleep. So that's your intention. And then you let go of the intent and you probably think of something else and fall asleep. But if I said to you, okay, how about we put you on TV tonight? 10 million people will be watching. We'll give you a million dollars if you can fall asleep in 20 minutes. You think you could do it? No. So here's a natural thing, but now we've loaded it with self-consciousness, pressure, efforting. And so when people say, I don't have intuition, Usually it's because that brain is so active 
um, that they haven't quieted down, they haven't opened up their feeling centers enough to be able to detect it. Everything that you do to enhance and practice with your spiritual abilities has a cumulative impact. It all stacks up. It all adds up. It's like going to the gym. It's like taking the stairs instead of the elevator. The idea with becoming more intuitive or becoming a master intuitive, if we want to use those words, is I imagine it like an equalizer on a soundboard where you have your intuition's voice and your uh, thinking voice, your limited mind. And every time you get that intuitive hit, when you listen to it, when you choose to act on it, you're giving energy to it. So you're turning the volume up on your intuition and you're turning the volume down on the limited mind. And the more you do that, eventually you get to a point where there's no voice in your head. There's no talking and it's just empty space. And all you receive is intuitive thought. Because ultimately our mind is designed to be an empty space for our heart's intuition, our heart's visions, just like when we were a child. You know, when we were a child, we didn't have the monkey mind. You can see clearly all of the pros and cons of a decision that you're going to make. You might get a flash, an insight, a picture, just a really simple thing. The other day I had a picture of myself. I'm at home, but I had a picture of looking up at um, the marquee at the airport or whatever, you know, they put the time that the flights are going. And I saw the word delayed. Now, it's just a really quick little flash of delayed. And so then I take a pause and go, okay, was that just monkey mind? Me imagining, oh, my flight the next day is going to be delayed. Or was that a true intuitive hit or an insight? How I know that that was an intuitive insight is that it came in unexpected. It came in very clear. It came in neutral. There was no excitement. There was no fear or anxiety. It simply was. So I took it very seriously. And of course, the next day, checked on the flight. It was delayed. Why did I get that insight? I don't know, but I'll take it. Opening up your intuition is stepping into a higher level of awareness. You are literally becoming aware of more things, but it's not everything. And there's a trap for professionals like me who can fetishize our own intuitive abilities and delusionally believe that makes us like gurus or something. When in reality, we just have this one extra capacity. They're like, I have intuition, thus I am a master. No, I have intuition and that's real. And maybe I'm even a master of intuition, but that doesn't make me all-knowing. That just makes me really good at this thing. We only have two emotional states, if you think about it, right? We have ones that make us feel heavier and ones that make us feel lighter. Okay. Whenever we're in a heavier emotional state, that means that whatever we're perceiving is not complete. It's, it's off in some way. You're not seeing the full picture. So it's kind of like if you're looking through blinds but the blinds aren't completely open so you're just seeing part of the picture so you might be a little chunk but if you're in a lighter emotional state passion joy creativity excitement love inspiration clarity then you're seeing clearly from your light body as you might want to call it there is the la la land effect you know where you meet someone and you're on cloud nine and you're kind of caught up in the fantasy of your mind but the question is did you get swayed off of your center you know because if, if you're just in this blissful bubble chances are it'll get popped at some point, you know, because you're living in a bubble. Some people want to enjoy the bubble, and that's that's okay, too. It really just depends where you're coming from. It's having the ability to get back into your center and being like, okay, let me just 
look at things clearly like, yes, this is an amazing person and I'm so excited about them. And let's be over here. Let's, let's, let's be where my intuition lives. If that's your choice, I still experience emotion. I mean, I love, I love emotions. Um, but it feels more spirited. Like I, I don't, the emotions that I experience don't take control of me, but I could feel emotions without becoming my emotions. And, and that's a great mastery point, you know, because a lot of people become their emotions. When they're angry, they become enraged and it's a blind rage, you know, where the idea is to be able to feel your emotions without having any judgment or resistance to them. You know, kind of like a dog. You know, when you see a dog who is upset and it's, you know, dogs feel emotions, right? They're sad. But how quickly can that dog go from sad to happy? Right. You know, that's because dogs don't dwell in it. They don't have they don't judge themselves for their emotions. They don't resist their emotions. They just allow it to flow through them. They don't. And then they go to the next thing. So they're a great example of how we can learn to better operate with our emotions in that way. I was dating a woman years ago and we were coming to the towards the end of our relationship and we were fighting a lot. We were just not in a good place. She had my keys for whatever reason. And I had a client that was coming, so I was like, make sure you come home straight after work because I need the keys for my client to come in. And she's like, yeah, yeah. And I knew, she, and I, intuitively, I knew she wasn't going to do it. But I was just like, in my head, I was like, she better do it, you know? <laughs> and sure enough, she didn't show up. For three hours, I could not get a hold of her. And so I was getting pissed. And I just got to the point where I was just, how could she do this? that's so insensitive and all these other reasons that came up only to find out three hours later, she was right down the street and she was just ignoring my calls. Logically, if I were to think with the logical mind, I have every reason in the world to be angry. She said she was going to do this and I, I could justify every reason why to be angry, but then I'm just justifying my heavy state, which that's not the goal. I'm not trying to stay in a heavy state. And so with the interest of practicing what I preach, I was like, okay, in some way, I'm wrong. In some way, there's something I'm not seeing. I can't imagine how I could possibly be wrong in this situation or, or misperceiving something because it's very clear that she just didn't do certain things. But let me, let me own it. So I, I stopped. I took a second and I took full responsibility for the emotion. And as soon as I said, what am I not seeing? My intuition gave me a download. And immediately what I saw was she's been doing this for months and months and months. And you keep choosing to take her back. And that's where you're enabling it and not taking full responsibility. So that only happened because I realized in the heavy state, there must be something I'm not seeing. So this is one of the ways that we could learn to work with our superpowers, with our intuition to be masters of it. What I encourage people to do is to really explore what brings them into their deepest center something that helps them drop out of their mind deeper into their direct felt experience and helps them to ground in that which is deeper than their mind. So for me, and for most people, that's some kind of meditation. The most important thing about meditation is effortlessness, comfort, just relaxing. People think that they have to do something, that meditation is hard, that they have to control the mind, that they have to blank the mind. All these ideas about meditation, completely erroneous. The pace of life, I think, is really out of step with what's natural and what's good for our social, relational, spiritual well-being. So I think we all need to find some practice 
that we can do every day to have some spiritual musculature so that we have a chance to respond rather than react. The easiest way to meditate and to begin to develop your intuition is to just sit down in a chair, close your eyes, you take maybe three really deep breaths like this. You can breathe out through either the nose or the mouth, it doesn't matter. But always breathing in through the nose because the nose is designed to take in air. Immediately you'll start to settle down. Ask to be taken deeper. And then take some more deep breaths and go deeper. And when I say ask, I mean say some affirmations perhaps. Find a prayer for yourself that you can come back to in the midst of the day. And the simpler the better. Affirmation is really important to help you get into that quiet, peaceful state. One of my prayers that I share with people is, may I ground in the infinite source so that I can stabilize there and open my heart to all that arises and become a deeper, more noble, wiser, kinder human being. It's like Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek saying, engage. I always picture him, you know, sometimes I picture him and think, engage and instead of i don't have to do like 15 or 20 minutes of meditation or anything it's like it's it's like a keyword i'm on maybe you have a problem at home maybe you are having a conflict with your spouse or you're having a conflict at work and you want to know how to solve that so you can ask that question and then take another deep breath and completely let go and be neutral have a neutral attitude but open to receive And then the answer will occur to you. It will just pop into your mind. I ask students to keep a diary of the insights that they get and what they did. What's the outcome? Like, oh, I don't want to write all that stuff down. Like, you don't want to do the work? Fine. Don't do the work, but don't come and complain to me. There is no magic pill I can give you to turn on your intuition. You have to do the work. So once they start keeping a log of what happens and uh, whether they followed it or not and what the outcome was over a period of a few weeks they can look back and see patterns and trends and how this is happening oh i feel it this way not beat themselves up for not trusting the intuitive insight but just use it as a key learning for next time this is work but it's well worth the payoff that you get For me, meditation isn't necessarily something you even have to do with your eyes closed formally. You know, you could be washing the dishes, you know, you could live in a meditative state. For me, meditation is simply presence. It's a lot like goosebumps. There's nothing you can do to make it happen, but you can notice when it does. I find that a lot of people struggle with meditation simply because it's not engaging enough. It's not because they suck at meditation. It's not because I can't quiet my mind. It's about finding a way to make meditation engaging for you so you really thoroughly enjoy the the process. I like creating really passionate, um, playful, creative meditations that same way when you're watching a movie. You know, if you're watching a boring boring movie, you're going to be talking in your head the whole time. But if you're engaged in it, you're present with it. That's like meditation. So it's about creating an engaging meditation. And yes, you could do that by slowing down. You could breathe at 12 o'clock, as I like to say, which is breathing right up your, your center over there. And... That'll start to slow you down and you get more present with your spirit. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. 
Meditating for 20 years in an ashram never appealed to me. I was in a monastery when I was uh, 14 for two years in silence and found that wasn't my shtick this lifetime. The types of binaural beat technology we use up at Monroe Institute and many other programs now are elegant and within 10 minutes getting you to quiet that mind. Binaural beats, it's an old technology that dates back to the 1830s. The idea is really simple. So if you're wearing a set of headphones and you put 100 hertz into one ear and you put 104 hertz into the other ear, uh, the, the brain tries to equalize the two. You know, it should be hearing the same thing. Well, it can't because they're inherently different. And there's this unique structure in the brain that says, oh, if I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that and they're different, it will set up a third tone. So the third tone is the difference between the two. So 100, 104. So it sets up a third tone, which is four. That tone, which doesn't exist anywhere except inside the brain, creates a beat. So it sounds kind of when you when you do that, it sounds kind of like wah, 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 wah. The whole brain starts to resonate with that third tone. For, as an instance, it's in the delta range, which is sleep. So if you just did those two tones and the brain starts to follow along, we call it the frequency following response. And it starts to follow along at four and you would go to sleep. We'll introduce four and then we'll introduce 14. So now you have your body is deeply relaxed and asleep and your mind is bright awake and clear. The cool thing is that you don't have to have the tones after a while. You do it a couple of times and you go, oh yeah, I remember what that looks like and feels like. Let's say you and I wanted to learn the waltz. It would be difficult, but if somebody started playing the waltz, we could catch the rhythm, right? The heavy sync binaural beat stuff presents a rhythm to the brain that allows uh, the brain to go, ah, this is what you want. And fairly easily, if your intention is to relax, you could relax or to open your heart or be creative or whatever else you wanted to go. But if the fire alarm went off, you'd be right up and dealing with it. It's not like a heavy drug, like ayahuasca or something, which might blow you apart and open you up to a lot of things, but it's hard to control. This is nice to be able to control. These binaural beats are just training wheels to get us to learn how to use, how to enter into these various states of expanded awareness and then off you go. I'm gonna give you an extreme example. My brother committed suicide back uh, about 25, six years ago. And I got the call from the police and then I had to call my parents and tell them their son had died under this circumstance. So then I had to hop on a plane and uh, go up for the funeral arrangements. So I am like, ugh. And I laid down with the hemisync. I admittedly have been practicing it for many years by then. But within 10 minutes, I felt a feeling of relaxing, opening, angelic consolation. Didn't hear my brother's voice or anything. But uh, my mood and my wife's mood were so good that we carried that up into the family gathering and helped everybody calm down. I'm going to give you a reading. And the way I do these readings is by allowing your energy or your feelings into my own body. It's like I'm relaxing into 
this subtle experience I'm having of you. I'm taking you on. I can see that you're like trying to be really present with me and uh, curious and a little bit on guard. And I can see that with my eyes. What people are watching is not me conceptually seeing you and making sense of it. It's me feeling what I feel and sharing it. Okay. And before every reading, I take off this necklace because I use this necklace to kind of protect myself from people's energy. And so now I want the opposite. So I'm going to just take it off here. The way my empathic abilities work is that I find myself feeling what is going on with another person. I feel people in layers. Like I can feel what somebody's feeling right now in this moment. Uh, and then I can dig beyond that into what's going on with their life generally at this point in time. And then if I really concentrate, I can feel into what are the driving emotions of their life. Okay, can I have your left hand face down? Thanks. I often just know what's going on with a person. It's almost as if a fragment of my consciousness, to the extent that I have an independent consciousness, goes off and travels into the other person and then comes back to me with information. The mind likes fancy. The heart speaks simple. For example, when I'm speaking with my grandmother, I love my grandmother. When I was living with her, I would have people come in for psychic sessions and I would give them the readings and transformations and whatnot. She's very curious without being judgmental. That's the secret sauce, you know, because if you're coming at me with judgment, I don't even want to explain to you, you know, but she genuinely wants to understand. She's like, what are you doing? You know, what do you do when you're helping somebody? Now, if I were to be fancy with her and I were to say, oh, well, I'm psychic and I, and I get messages from their spirit guides and that gives them information, that's more for me. That's me wanting her to believe in my world. I don't need her to understand my language. I just She's asking a question and so she's looking for a clarity. So what I just tell her is that I'm like, I feel people and I could feel the truth inside of them and I reflect it back to them in a way that they can see and feel it too and that causes changes in their lives. That's it. And she's like, oh, that's really smart. I like that. Start with how you're feeling right now which is apprehensive, guarded would be another word. And I feel all this pressure in my head that isn't mine, that's you. And I can feel you trying to make sense of the situation. It's you're in your head and you're spinning in there. If you're feeling other people's stuff, it's sometimes really hard to know what's yours and what's theirs. And that's the challenge. Like, let's just embrace that challenge. You're not always going to know, and that's okay. You're learning. I meet a lot of people who are very high empathy. They're sort of like sponges. That wherever they go, they will take on other people's feelings and emotions and experiences and wear it in their auric field as though it is their own. People are becoming ultra-sensitive now because of the high-frequency energy, which means often very empathic. And then people are like, I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to feel all this. I don't know. You know, and, and um, so there are skills for developing that and working with it, you know, that keep you sane. One way I have gotten better at distinguishing what's mine from what's not mine is to get really good at knowing what's mine. So I am often checking in. How am I feeling? What's really going on inside me? 
the more clear I am about my own energy, feelings, what have you, the easier it is for me to know, wait, that doesn't feel like me. That has a different quality. One of the first things I do is ask them, do you help a lot of people? And they say, yeah. And say, well, do you ask people what help they need from you before you offer it? Oh, no. I just figure out what they need and I jump in and I do it. Like, well, I got to tell you something clairvoyantly and you can take this or you can leave it. But by just jumping in and helping, you are not taking care of yourself and you may not be doing exactly what they need at that moment. You could expend a lot less energy just by being a good listener. Eventually, that's going to catch up with them to where I'm not intuitive anymore. What happened? I All I sense now is need, need, need from people. It's because you've cut off how you treat yourself. You are trying to be precise and get things right. But it's taking a lot of effort to get things right because you haven't yet found the flow with anything. You don't really know how else to deal with things other than to try to figure them out. And sometimes it can get overwhelming. I wonder if you even get a headache sometimes with that approach. What's happening below the surface, the feelings are a lot of fear. If the fear had a voice, it would say, is this okay? Am I okay? Is this okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? And then when you do feel like it's okay, you can relax. And then you have this very natural way of connecting. You also, like I can, feel what's really going on with people if you feel calm and comfortable. And you're very loving. But if you don't feel calm and you're in the state of fear, then that loving quality gives way to this hyperactivity where you're just trying to figure it out. How can I get this done? How can I solve this problem? And you oscillate between these two states of feeling open and caring and feeling nervous and hyperactive with a lot of um, mental chatter. We're very social creatures. If you're in fear, that's contagious too. Watch what you're thinking and who you hang out with um, because it will tend to be um, influence how you're feeling. But if one person who's in a deep, deep wonderful, peaceful place, I think can uh, set the tone for many hundreds of other folks. Underneath this fear, is a frustration, even a rage, that hasn't yet found any space for itself. The frustration or rage would say something like, why do I have to do it this way? Why is it like this? Why am I forced into this? If the insights that are coming to you are based in anger or retribution, revenge, uh, or paranoia, that one's plotting against me, this one's after my job or whatever, those are the insights you need to examine very, very carefully because they're not coming in a helpful, helpful healing framework. If the insights that you get are helpful, hopeful, and healing, why wouldn't you want to trust them? You're trying to figure out how to fit into things. When I was your age, I also was trying to figure out how to fit into things. But underneath that, there's some deep, essential part of you that doesn't want to fit in and that just wants to do things the way you would want to do them. And you haven't had time or space yet or enough safety to be able to go there. And there's a lot of anger around that. If I'm resonating with you on some level, 
you're probably already using your empathic abilities. Like we're using them all the time. We're using them to tune into people we're around to make them feel more safe. Uh, we have an intuition about what people need. So maybe the thing to do is just to notice where you're already doing it and give yourself some credit. We're not used to getting credit for being empathetic. We're used to getting credit for being coming up with a solution to a problem. But what if the best thing we can do is just to be with someone in the problem? We tend not to get that much credit for it, but so we can give it to ourselves. And down there at the level of the soul, you feel like somebody who wants to, needs to weave people together. The kind of person who you want to be in a group with because you're going to know how everyone is feeling and how to make everyone feel good. Like social glue, the community builder, the very gentle and loving community builder. I imagine that you're already playing this role a lot among your friends and your family. And I'm here to validate that as your superpower to encourage you to notice when you're doing that and give yourself some credit for it because it might come very easily. It's not going to happen when you feel like you have to get things right. Then you're going to go into this intense cerebral place and your natural gifts of weaving people together will fall aside. But as you develop more and more of that gift, the more that's what you'll want to do. You'll be the one bringing that peace and connection. When you establish a beautiful meditative field, heart open, grounded to the earth, connected to spirit full wide, so you have a large projection of energy around you, it tends to influence people. Uh, they may just say, gee, every time I talk to you, I feel better. I come up here to Monroe Institute often on Friday when programs start on Saturday. Building's completely empty and the place is glowing because been people have meditated there all week. It's the opposite of haunted house. It's kind of a blessed house. And um, I consciously do that to my home in the mountains of North Carolina, where we extend that energy we're feeling to have a beautiful, peaceful place there. For the plants to grow well, for people to be feeling very healing, and that does occur. That's what I have for you, Jesse. And open my eyes. Well, you pretty much hit the uh, head of the nail with the hammer right there. That's, yeah, that's very accurate to what I'm actually feeling or what I believe that I'm feeling. More and more people are saying, I need to learn about intuition. I want to be more fulfilled in my life. Intuition will take you home. It's a way to feeling fully aligned. It's a way to feeling fully in your purpose. They'll say, I want to be happy. I tell them, no, nope, I can't guarantee that because happy is uh, dependent on an outcome. I'll be happy when I get that job. I'll be happy when uh, I finish school. I'll be happy when I have a grandchild finally. All of these things dependent on an outcome that's giving away the power. Instead of happiness, shoot for joy. Just go for joy. 
you can have a joyful moment at any time, a joyful moment. Look at this flower blooming over here. Look at this nice lady that uh, made my coffee at the coffee shop today and how she smiled at me. And I wonder if she's having a difficult life, but yet she took the time to smile and be nice to me. Those moments and being observant of those moments, present in those moments, create stronger intuition. When you start to integrate those things and bring them in, you'll feel more and more like yourself. And eventually, if you allow those things to be your guide, you will realize that you are part of this incredible stream of consciousness that just wants to run through you. And you'll feel less like yourself, but only in the beautiful sense that you are now part of everything. Even when you're not trying to tune into things, if you're taking care of yourself, if you have prayer, meditation, balance, centered, uh, good nutrition, drink plenty of water, if you're as kind to others as you can possibly be, as you're, if you're as kind to yourself as you can possibly be, the intuition will turn itself on. Your perception of where your energy is, you could say, feeling pretty good. That means my energy is positive. I'm feeling really good. Things are starting to glow and look beautiful and I'm getting insights and I'm getting more intuition and serendipity is happening, synchronicity is happening. Uh, that would be a sign of getting into ever higher flow. Be aware of everyone and everything, animals, plants, people that are around you. See the beauty and see the joy and listen to the insights that you get and act on them. This one is called Saturn and the Council of Seven. I enjoyed that, everybody. Yeah, uh, that this, was good. That was good, yeah. This is Tim, the tactical advisor. Can planets hold sentience? Yes. Yeah. 
And is there tangible evidence of Saturn's structural manifestations on Earth in the form of events and timelines? Tim, the tactical advisor, discusses to Emery Smith the link between what humanity calls Christ consciousness and the first life form in the solar system to reach the highest level of frequential harmony, level seven. Tim believes the maintenance of the Council of Seven is conducted by the Galactic Federation. And Saturn is supposed to have something to do with St. Germain. Mm. <clears throat> Alchemy. And Saturn is the meeting point for communications to an Andromedan species on Earth with covert military contracts. Whoops. Is Every mainstream human group who uses an arrow in their logo communicating with the Council of Seven, a group of ET beings based around Saturn with God-level consciousness. All right, this is 34 minutes, and let this saga begin. Here we go. Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we are with Tim, who is speaking with us from Germany. Tim is a tactical advisor in the covert governance in Germany that relates to extraterrestrial life. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again. Tim, what is the Council of Seven? So the Council of Seven is actually um, a diplomatic but also military uh, group uh, that comes from an ET presence um, that is actually heading down information from level seven consciousness, which is super high consciousness. If we're thinking about uh, timelines, it's uh, quite far away from us. Uh, so reaching down those information, you know, to human groups, uh, but also a quite a number of ET groups. Before we discuss level seven, who are the groups they're communicating with right now? Every group on Earth, mainstream group or advanced group uh, that has an arrow symbol in their logo uh, is actually part of Council 7. Council of 7 are communicating with the Council of 7. This is true for quite a number of space-related agencies um, in the U.S., in China, Germany, Europe as well, and you name it. So it can be found all over the uh, the earth, actually. Now, Tim, are you saying these are the human groups with the arrow or A-shaped logo in many space programs around the world and not specifically extraterrestrials? Um, so the original source of the Council of Seven, it's a very high intelligence ET, and they uh, give information and strategic orders and advices down to you know, like a pyramid shape in that way, uh, down to different other groups. And you will find the logo and this 
a very specific arrow. It's very significant in that way. You're going to find it all over the place. And uh, basically, seemingly unrelated organizations um, that might even geopolitically oppose each other are all sharing the same symbol. Let's start at the top of the pyramid and, and get a step-by-step breakdown of all the life forms involved. Okay, so the top of the pyramid is, again, a very high ET presence. Um, officially, the only life form that we know that exists in, the, in this universe right now at level 7 consciousness, which is, if you want to define it, the God consciousness. It could also be put into uh, time line terms if you want and then it's something that is very very distant and far away from what we're currently experiencing but it's still drawing in those timelines that we're experiencing right now from our perspective this et presence forms around what we perceive as saturn tim why do you use the term god consciousness or source if it is something that evolves as in the example of level seven emerging from something more refined how do you understand that so basically in the beginning of all those projects we were assuming that the universe only has octave of consciousness levels so uh, each consciousness level was a model to refine and to declare on which kind of stage of consciousness you are usually we only know level three consciousness beings on this planet but of course it goes higher Um, But we also came across quite recently the assumption that there are even more layers than level seven, level eight. Um, But it's for me, it's super hard to define what's going to happen in those distant, far realities. So basically at level eight consciousness, everything seems to uh, set up into a quite a new universe in that way. So Level seven consciousness is uh, even higher than being six and mostly the ultimate moment of the story that we are perceiving uh, right now in this universe. One thing that I want to note, too, is uh, that something that we also described as uh, Christ consciousness uh, is also, uh, at least this is uh, what the Zeta reticulize and the Grace define as being, you know, coming from Saturn, from this uh, Council of Seven. So it's those biblical stories that we have around Christ and the Christ consciousness in a very spiritual and very complex way uh, also originates from this point and location of time. Aside from Jesus, as an example of the highest consciousness, Are there any more examples? I want to say it's super abstract from the uh, derived biblical and religious religious concepts that we have on Earth. Everything I know about it is from pretty advanced but complex spiritual concepts that beings from Orion have. So uh, basically, if we're talking about Zeta Reticuli and Grace, for example, uh, they do have something that we would call spirituality in some way, even it's m- way more advanced and, and very exotic to us. But their story, which is super alien, actually, um, to, to what we perceive, what we would call Christ consciousness is actually coming from this being around Saturn and it's currently being held back and isolated around this planet 
waiting for a moment where it can, you know, spread over the whole galaxy. And it doesn't have anything actually to do with the religious or uh, biblical um, assumption that we have around the historic or mystical figure of Jesus. Are they located on and around Saturn? What we know is that the Council of Seven around Saturn is actually the first life form in the solar system and beyond that actually reached this very, very high level of consciousness. That doesn't mean that there you know, aren't other forms of life that would also reach level seven consciousness, which will uh, totally create different pathways for the universe. But as we know, it's the highest successful point and location inside and outside of time that exists at this very moment. As the pyramid descends, how do we get to the Council of Seven? And who are the members? So if we're talking about this galaxy, the official representative in 3D actually is the Council of Andromeda. This is the 3D representation of what's going on in level seven consciousness. And they are actually in contact with different groups, you know, among the stars and on Earth. And basically on Earth, um, this is, you know, way down the line. But then you find all these uh, different space agencies, different uh, military organizations that all carry, uh, you know, the triangle of shape uh, in the logo. So far, we have the Greys, the Zetas, and the Andromedans. Who else makes up the seven? They're not composed of seven groups. They're actually composed of millions of groups in that uh, kind of way. It's still a pyramid shape bringing down the order and advices coming from the Council of Seven. But being six, for example, is one of the uh, the members of them as well. So they also report to Saturn. At that moment, we're reaching realms of existence that are so exotic and far away that, you know, definitions of life are really hard to make. So um, if we are talking about 3D representation of it, uh, then um, the Council of Andromeda is the um, official representative of, of the Council of Seven. And the, the number seven actually comes from, you know, the high state uh, of frequential harmony. Uh, and actually, the logo also refers to that. What is the significance of Saturn you keep referring to, Tim? Basically, planets in itself are life forms as well. So if we take the sun in its original form and not in the way that we, you know, from our perspective, re receive it, uh, then you will see that the sun is actually in this solar system, the first giver of consciousness. And that is actually why you see the ancient Egyptians, why you see the Sumerians, why you see all those Mayans and different other ancient civilizations actually paying respect and worshiping this solar entity in this way, because they all understand that consciousness actually comes from the solar activity. If we think outside of the box of our own reality, then the planet itself is part of this harmonious field that curves around the solar system. And um, from their perspective, they have an enhanced reality, enhanced perception of Saturn. And it's not only a planet anymore or life sphere. It's uh, much more it's its own reality and its own entity, its own sentient being. When you speak about Saturn as a sentient being, is it a different reality? 
it is used as a base, but it's also a different reality. So if you if you think of a very enhanced moment of perception and reality, then you will see that they create their own reality field around that. But uh, on this level of perception and the way that we as you know 3D, uh, 4D, 5D uh, beings uh, receive it, uh, it's also been used as a tangible. 3D manifestation basis uh, and yeah, a location in time. Who are the beings who live on or around Saturn? I don't know if there are beings living on uh, Saturn, but what we know is that the planet itself is a kind of a location in order to make meetings possible. And the Council of Seven has also been understood as uh, a very tangible and uh, physical reality where sort of gatekeepers, I think it's what, what the translation would be, more or less holographically portrayed and people enter that field and have direct communication with them. And also the ring around Saturn is supposed to be some kind of defensive barrier uh, with a lot of infrastructure in it. So there isn't a dominant species living around or on Saturn in the same way as humans are the dominant species on Earth. Uh, well, we know that some kind of life form is living there. I don't know if it's, uh, if it's a uh, 3D form. I don't know if there are houses in that way, if you understand me. So I don't know if, if that is the case. Uh, what we know is that uh, just as much as we have space stations around the planet Earth, there's a lot of infrastructure around planet Saturn. This infrastructure around Saturn, who placed it there and who maintains it? Uh, good question. So it's basically not been placed there by humans. I have no information about who placed it there, but it's maintained by the Galactic Federation. Basically, all those members are actually part of the Council of Seven, and they are actually doing the maintenance work. What is the role of the Council of Seven? Um, so the role of the Council of Seven is to draw in as many species, races, and beings, uh, so they can have this, you know, unified field uh, that you know combines all possible realities. Uh, that might be very abstract to understand, but if you want to see it from our perspective, um, then again we have this problem in the universe in duality, actually, because this is a dualistic universe or version of the universe that things are opposing each other. So you have always you always have some kind of conflict or differences in, in their in opinions. So planet Saturn or the Council of Saturn actually uh, gives allowance to certain missions to take place. Whenever, for example, a being contacts another being if you if you for example take uh, an ET species that you know appears uh, on planet Earth or uh, goes into uh, contact work in that field, so they always have to get their allowance from the Council of Seven. For how long have they been interacting with humankind? Well, so they they exceeded the need for time in that way. So um, at level six consciousness, um, which is the level of you know not the realm of non-existence, uh, we don't have to deal with time anymore. So uh, at level seven consciousness, they understand themselves as just a form of history or a, a book to be filled up or something. So they think of themselves as ageless. 
uh, and they are actually as much as the universe is ageless. Uh, so you can think of billions and billions and billions of years if you want to think of linear timeline in that way. As we grasp this concept of what you're sharing, would it be fair to say that a level seven must express through many different aspects for it to integrate the 3D on Earth? Absolutely. So at least in the form of Council of Seven, that is very true. And the best concept, still it's not not the perfect concept, is to think of God in that way. So it's it's more or less a godlike consciousness, uh, but it's still um, not the unified uh, source. So source is still even above uh, the Council of Seven. But if you wanna, if you really wanna use a term. And, you know, separate it from the cultural perception of it and, and all those connotations that come along with it. Then you could say it's it's God consciousness on Earth. Would that consciousness be reflected through the great avatars depicted in various religions? So while they are using uh, gatekeepers, which are, you know, holographic, very tall beings that uh, actually make up this or uh, form this Council of Seven in order to. Uh, gets information from this very, very high field. I would say that the mystical aspects of those stories that we have on Earth are, uh, yeah, they're filled up with confusion and, and, and a lot of misinformation in that field. So it's not quite clearly the same. But yes, when, whenever you think of uh, certain deities or th- certain um, you know, events taking place, uh, then ultimately this is all coming from the Council of Seven because they are actually the, the, the first and the only being uh, that we know of that is actually deciding uh, upon the reality. And because they have a strict plan on how they're, you know, how everything needs to take place, um, they are actually allowing uh, or denying cert- certain, certain uh, events and incidents. What other examples do we see from the Council of Seven on Earth? (laughs) So to be very exact and to think from their point of view, then everything, everything, you, me and everything else um, is actually coming uh, from their uh, consciousness. So if you want to think about it, then in in terms of consciousness or cosmic consciousness, then the first representation of source itself is the sun as the primal giver of consciousness, which is why it's worshipped. And then the first manifestation of consciousness, the first form of it is the Council of Seven. And then everything else forms around through this uh, kind of reality field. Is the Council of Seven manifesting mostly from Saturn as opposed to other planets? Well, so... (laughs) It, it's the underlying structure uh, is um, they use uh, planet Saturn as a manifestation place in order to get in contact and reach down information. But uh, their approach to reality is that they are this cloud of reality that we perceive. So everything is actually the Council of Seven from their point of view. So you are the Council of Seven, I am the Council of Seven, and everything else is the Council of Seven. Um, But again, uh, it only takes one or another one consciousness to break out of that and to form their own reality field and become a level seven consciousness. And then suddenly we have two life forms or forms of life 
And then that would create a whole new dynamic because then you have another dualistic universe. You mentioned the importance of creating stability and duality. Can you explain the significance of that? Yes, 100%. So this is actually the number one uh, function of the Council of Seven, which is to balance out the tangible and hands-on experiences of opposing forces, paradoxes, and conflicts. So basically what their approach was, and this is shown in their logo, because the logo does not only have this one arrow that points towards heaven, but it's also uh, half of that arrow that's pointing down. So that what they want to share is, this is actually the representation of yin and yang in that way, but with a focus that goes more towards heaven than towards um, you know the negative. So what they want to express with that is, and they say they accept the negative, but they want more positive to counterbalance that. So you have actually, and this is uh, why you have uh, seven corners in this logo. So you have four corners that are pointing towards the positive and three corners that are pointing towards the, neg the negative. So they are actually allowing for disaster and conflict to take place, but they always want to learn from that and, you know, have the approach that uh, even the negative is actually leading towards the positive, if that makes sense. The first examples of that logo and our connection to space are the symbols from space agencies around the world. Why haven't we seen that symbol in our world before, the space agencies? Oh, you have seen that symbol. So if you take a dollar bill, you will actually see the pyramid on it. So you will see the pyramids uh, as a representation of that. So basically all the stories that we have around deities and beings contacting, for example, ancient, ancient Egypt, these are all incidents um, that are thought by the Council of Seven way back in time. And even if you think about Jesus and the idea that comes from that, and if you compare it, for example, to Nietzsche, who uh, had you know, this thought that um, the first story of Jesus um, is actually incomplete because there's no resolution to the positive in that way. Um, this is part of the Council of Seven's idea of um, the negative needs to transmute into the positive at some point. Tim, are you suggesting that every pyramidal structure on Earth throughout history is a symbolic representation of the Council of Seven and the Level Seven consciousness? Yes, that's true. And especially if you think about the um, the material pyramids always having a non-material equivalent outside of time, uh, which is more or less, you know, the opposing uh, pyramids um, that is not being seen below it. Um, then you can also, you know, draw the, the line towards the logo of the Council of Seven, um, saying that, you know, there's, there must be more positive in the world that counterbalance the negative. Here on Earth, we have the A-shape or arrow-shaped logo symbolizing their relationship to the Council of Seven. And through them, the Andromedans are first. Is that the pecking order of the pyramid? That is the pecking order. Um, so actually, the, the first representation are the Andromedans or the, the Council of Andromeda. What I've been told what's going on is that planet Saturn uh, acts as the number one meeting point for, uh, you know, these kind of advices and suggestions and strategic meetings. 
um, and that they use some very uh, exotic, um, more or less holographic representations on themselves uh, in order to get this uh, information from you know, the Council of Seven down to the Council of Andromeda. And Andromeda actually uh, is um, responsible for this solar system, especially for the contact with Earth. They have, as much as I know, a human-like species. So it's a, uh, Andromeda has a, um, a very closely related human species that is also a warring species uh, as well. Uh, and they uh, stand in contact uh, with, for example, the U.S. military, the advanced COVID military, and different other COVID militaries as well. Tim, when we see these symbols on Earth and space agencies and TV shows or even films, is that acknowledgement that there is a conscious connection and communication with the Andromedans and Council of Seven? Yes, 100%. I don't know about the television shows, which is kind of curious. I've also um, seen that uh, I think Stargate and Star Trek, they all have this kind of symbol. I'm not quite sure why that is. It might be that the the media itself are part of the this in initiative in that way in order to tell maybe the public that this is an official you know, program in order to bring people closer to the idea uh, of space uh, travel and portal technologies. But this is just an assumption. But all the other different organizations and, and groups that have this arrow in the, in the logo, they all um, want to show to each other that they are part of it. And because they are only using the arrow that is pointing upwards, they are also um, kind of showing each other that they are um, they should be well positively perceived in that way, that they are the good. Yeah. Even though certain nations appear to be in conflict on Earth, are all the agencies connected to space unified? Yes, they are all unified by this, um, you know, very strong and uh, functional uh, reality field uh, that comes from the Council of Seven. And they allow for uh, the conflict on Earth to take place. Uh, because they know that this ultimately will lead to peace, which is kind of a curious idea. But um, if you think about it, you know, and zoom out of time and see see it, then um, uh, if you reflect on the negative, then it ultimately will always lead to the positive. Tim, explain how the dominance of a warrior race can lead to peace. Well, it's the experience. So it seems like um, the universe, at, at least in this version of the universe, the universe has this tendency um, to uh, this tendency towards drama, towards um, you know uh, chaos um, and such. But there's no way. There seems to be no way around it. At least not. Well, we don't know another way right now. So if anyone comes up with another way, that's pretty beautiful. Uh, but right now, the assumption is that the universe needs to play that out in some way. And it seems like so the Council of Seven was the first life form that actually completed uh, this game. If you want to see the universe as a game, uh, then they are the first uh, who took away the uh, uh well, the metal in that way. And what is the role of humans, space agencies, warring races, and the Council of Seven as guardians? 
So basically, the new formed Space Force in the US, they are also carrying that logo. And they also attributed to them the uh, their intention. They, they call themselves the, self the Guardians. Uh, so this is an approach to tell everyone that um, their intent is actually to guard and to protect planet Earth. So they also see themselves as positive, as a as a light warrior in that way. So we are always we are, we are uh, talking a lot about the concept of um, what we would call the light warriors. So positive um, militant force uh, that actually plays by certain rules. So we have a, a huge set of of legislative and and. Um, warrior rules that are actually coming from the Council of Seven. Uh, and it's not possible, even though it sounds like a, a huge mess in that way, but it's not possible for everyone who's um, contributing to the idea uh, and the reality of the Council of Seven to just have it their way. Uh, they could not go out in space and blow up a planet or invade uh, certain planets um, they can do that, but they have to get admission and allowance from the Council of Seven. Would you say the Council of Seven, you know, with the arrow-shaped symbol, you know, working with the space agencies on Earth, are they acting benevolently for a higher purpose? Yeah, it's kind of hard to um, to acknowledge that, but their own approach uh, and their own understanding of themselves is that they are benevolent. Yes, so. Even though it doesn't seem to be that way, actually, because there's so much cruelty and gore and, and hate going on on this planet, Earth is actually still considered one of the, the positive, benevolent planets and organizations. So if you would talk to someone from the new founded Space Force um, or all these other space forces around uh, you know, Britain, Germany as well, um, if you speak about their own self-perception, they would all say they are uh, the good, the benevolent. Uh, and from the understanding of the Council of Seven, um, they would confirm that. The leader of the nation decides to take aggressive action towards another nation. Would that government be read into the higher order of the A-shaped organizations connected to our space councils? There are direct exchanges between um, all those groups that carry the, the A shape in the logos with the Council of Seven. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who's in, in government or uh, in different other organizations, uh, that they uh, take direct advices um, and suggestions from, be, uh, from, from the Council of Seven. So uh, I've met some some um, high-level politicians, and uh, I would say that uh, the front row of them have no idea about what's going on. Uh, it's more or less the second row of people um, that are included in certain organizations um, that are more secretive in that way, uh, get the real information. And still, any conflict that is taking place on Earth is actually... Um, allowed, kind of okay to the Council of Seven. So if a foreign leader decides to, um, you know, even if the, this, the country has certain organizations that are referring or answering 
um, to uh, the Council of Seven, then a, an individual is uh, still allowed to uh, get in conflict with that. But this would always mean that uh, the groups and co um, organizations that are actually related to the Council of Seven uh, will then get some kind of advice in order to balance that out. Um, so uh, we might see that, for example, in the secrecy of, um, you know, uh, the UFO topic, uh, where you, where, you know, things are going on behind the scenes. Um, but there's also, uh, and this is probably the reason why you find, you know, this arrow shape in Star Trek and Stargate and different other, um, movies. Um, this is ba the balancing process, uh, you know, of balancing out the secrecy behind the, the, the scenes. How does the Council of Seven, Tim, allow this malevolence to dominate the planet the way that it has? Um, because it's part of the universal play in, in their eyes. So even, even the disastrous um, and abnormal uh, amount of, um, you know, um, physical force killing gore or whatever is, um, is still part of the way the universe or this version of the universe is behaving. Um, so they see it as a natural um, thing to accept in that way. So from your background in governance within secret access programs, where do you see humankind heading in the next five to 10 years? Um, so we have several, um, several dif different options where we could head. So um, one thing is uh, that we have to while the military did a good job in order to clear uh, the situation on the surface, um, one of the biggest concerns actually is the uh, the social dynamics that we still have. So um, I talked about the tribal nature of humans, which is, you know, uh, different sample groups that are opposing each other and are in conflict with each other. So that has to be uh, cleared. I know that uh, statistics and analysis says that a planetary government uh, is actually uh, effective for most planets. So if we compare that with different other planets, um, it's been uh, seen that a planetary government is something uh, that solves this administrative uh, issues that we have. And this is something of concern for different groups again because we've seen this you know development from the 1950s that certain advanced group just broke away from the mainstream uh, just because they felt like um, in your case congress or you know presidents or you know world leaders elected leaders uh, would not actually be quick enough in order to decide for th certain things so this is the interest of certain advanced groups that um, there's a much more uh, a much quicker administrative level on this planet. And I would also say that um, the nature of it is um, that the planet itself has for far too long uh, dealt with a isolated or played an isolated situation. So we're actually dealing with an open system situation right now. And more and more of this information has been known to, well, conventional groups uh, and even, you know, uh, floating in to the mainstream more and more because uh, that's where the personnel is coming from. That's where um, companies, uh, upcoming companies needs to put their focus on. So that's going to be the future and the or that's going to be the upcoming situation.
Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. It's always great having you. Thank you so much again for having me. I'm Emory Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. All righty. So this will be our last little piece here tonight. It's called Venusians, Oppenheimer, and Einstein. Mm. Did Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer, did they write a letter to President Truman about ETs? Mm -hmm. What exactly did these two wonder-kind scientists envision for our encounters with celestial beings? Paola Harris, author and boots-on-the-ground ufologist, returns to Gaia and takes Oppenheimer's blockbuster notoriety beyond the Hollywood big screen. Regina Meredith and Harris connect the dots between the first Trinity experiment and Roswell. Atom bombs dropped in World War II and mysteriously thwarted Cold War games and contactee warnings and presidential peace proclamations. Is it possible Venusian influences are preventing a nuclear meltdown to protect against a multidimensional impact? That's uh, uh, quite a set of questions here. This is Regina Meredith, and she's uh, featuring Paola Harris. And this is 45 minutes. Mm. So let's have this one begin. Here we go. World War II history and the bombing of Hiroshima that few people know. Robert Oppenheimer, the lead developer of the atomic bomb, had regrets at what he had participated in, and that's common knowledge. But what we didn't know is that he and Albert Einstein reached out to then-President Truman, suggesting that the bomb brought on heavy ET surveillance of Earth with a possibility for colonization. This is not well known. This should be very well known. It should be in history books. But it's not. Welcome back, Paula. Well, it's good to be here. And it's certainly good to have this discussion because I think it's very appropriate, especially since the film Oppenheimer came out. Yes. Which kind of dovetails with uh, Jacques Vallée, my book, Trinity, because we had spent a lot of time in in New Mexico and and the, the shadow of Oppenheimer is there every time we walked into the Al Barn Cafe and then. The houses they used um, were right behind the Owl Barn Cafe. And so if, if you just imagine the planning during this, I think this is history. Oh, it's huge. It's a huge part of history. And also because it's two such renowned and highly respected scientists who had very, very high clearance talking because they had clearance. They knew about our participation and the, the visitations from ETs and craft and even back engineer technology to an extent. So they're commenting on this in a way, pleading with the president to take into consideration 
we have to find a global way to start interfacing with these visiting ET civilizations. And we're gonna get to the actual letter itself in a bit. But first let's set the stage. So let's talk about Oppenheimer when they were developing the bomb, when they were out there near Trinity at the Al, Al what? Al Barn Cafe. And it's still there, and it's still there. It's been built up, but um, the people that own it are still the same people. For us investigative journalists, it's easy to go and talk to the owner uh, and say, do you remember those guys that came in here? And she'd say, she said to me, she said, well, we thought they were traveling salesmen because they had briefcases. briefcases, (laughs) And that's what traveling salesmen had. And that that bar is located at the, uh, you know, the juncture of the Pan American Highway, which was very, very traveled. And it's like just one street uh, in San Antonio. In fact, there were some of the top physicists and nuclear physicists and scientists right. in the world gathering out in the desert, preparing for this quote test, which we'll talk about in a moment. And when you wrote the book Trinity, you interviewed some of the people who were alive in the day, the young boys that had um, had witnessed and actually interfaced with some of the stuff on board, a craft that visited the area after the Trinity explosion. One month after, yeah. And which is very, the timing on all of this, this letter and everything, is extremely important because it was very clear that our entrance into the atomic age was of dire concern for many ET species throughout the universe. Well, it would be. It's just logical. I mean, here we are, this civilization that is, uh, you know, seems to be uh, non-threatening and then all at once what we do, and, and, and we made it clear, in fact, Jacques made it clear, that was not a test. That was an actual bomb. Yeah, that wasn't a test. That What's was no test. test about that, it? How, there's no testing that. And and uh, they learned from that, too, though, that if you uh, did explode it from the air, it did less damage than the ground. So you can imagine that the fallout was a 150-mile radius. And the actual Trinity site that we covered is 13 miles away from ground zero. Right. So, and and the actual uh, Albarn Cafe is four miles away. So you think that Oppenheimer wouldn't know if he's, you know, lodging there? They also told me that was the only like place they could buy groceries and uh, the only place in town, the only watering hole in town. And in those days, they had um, I don't know if people remember, but they had soda fountains. Yes, and and so the the young guys that were part of the Trinity uh, or the Manhattan Project would go in there to see the girls because that's the only place you met somebody in the nineteen forties and fifties over a beer float or something. Exactly, that's why they left it uncovered when the boys, you know, were there to go see the girls at the Al Barn Cafe and. The, the little kids told told me that they hung out there because that was where all the action was at the soda fountain. The, oh, now these are people who are now old men. Oh, when they yeah. were little kids, oh, they, they were hanging out, out there. there. They were they, they were uh, nine and seven, and they were hanging out there. And uh, now they're in you know in their eighties, and one is deceased. But you, when you do a story like this, and I already knew about this. Um, this letter, because I had, had looked at it at least 10 years ago, and I'm friends with Bob and Ryan Wood, because I had asked them, I said, this letter is extraordinary. Is it real? Because it's part of the MJ-12 documents. 
but you did more work on it. Uh, well, I mean, I just followed up. You, you're the one that gave me the, you know, the push on it. You gave me the letter, a copy of it. So I just followed up with Bob Wood and I said, where did you get this information? So he told me what his source was, who was, their father was highly entrenched at a high level in the government at that time. So he was able to, I don't know how he was able to take a, co- a copy of it, but he did. Right, because they made everything in carbon copies. The carbon, know, yeah. yeah, not only that, yeah. that's typewritten. So it was so. Timothy Cooper was the man yeah. that gave Bob Wood. To explain who Bob Wood is, so everyone understands and has some context. Well, Bob Wood worked for McDonnell Douglas, and and I love the man. He's in his nineties now, but he's such a a treasure trove of real history because he and Ryan not only worked with the MJ twelve documents, they did so much re- UFO research. Yes, so he's you know, famous in the field he's famous and he's, he's a credible player and he oh, is mm-hmm. well he worked for and he's a scientist yeah. he worked yeah. for mcdonald douglas and the and the thing is that that um with bob they were able to put together the history of this yes. because this is not 2023 just the government you know re, uh, you know uh, releasing what it i mean we're going back to 1945 here yeah this so is serious stuff if, if, if you if you do your homework you realize that these these documents are going around that with the Freedom of Information Act, we have even more documents. Mm-hmm. And I have, of course, I have a, um, my own archive, right? You know, and a, a, my own archive of documents. And I always kid around, but I have 300 books and I've read all my colleagues work. Otherwise, how could I put this together? One of the things I saw on that document right off the bat was the way it was written. This is really, we'll get to this in just a moment. So we're setting the stage here. So first of all, we've had the quote test, in other words, the bombing the at bombing. Trinity, which had huge fallout and health consequences mm. for little Remy, Bacchus, and, and the other people that were living there. The native population wasn't even warned. And here you have, I mean, the ignorance, it was ignorance. They just didn't know in the day. When you see the film Oppenheimer, which was so beautifully done, and they're getting ready for the blast, people are putting like grease paint on their face and sitting in lawn chairs <laughs> waiting to watch this detonation. They didn't know. They didn't know, but what was very bad, and I think there's a lawsuit or something around it, is that um, the repercussions were terrible. You cancers, know, cancers, blown out eardrums, yeah. eyesight, blindness. Fact, uh, Jose uh, Padilla's mother at, at five o'clock in the morning is packing lunch for his father. He's going to work and she opens the door and she says it was like the light of a thousand signs. Right. right. I can imagine the sun being a thousand times more. But the, she was blinded in one eye. Right. And, and but result, they didn't warn any of the native no, population that couldn't. this was going to happen. Well, they couldn't. I I don't know how you work around this. I, I was looking at all the the ways they could have done it, but uh, no. Later on, they all gathered and they said that they had blown. Stay indoors and under your covers. Don't look outside anything. They said they blew up an ammunition dump. That was the official. Yeah. The official, official. Well, it had repercussions and it was filmed and it was also photographed. And we're going to get to a very unusual photograph in a little bit because it's all tying back to the same subject. This, this development in humanity using this technology, it did bring great surveillance and great concern that exists to this day. We've had intervention through the years. It appears uh, from ETs. We're going to talk about one of them in a little bit. To stop us from ever conducting this kind of experiment on Earth again. 
because of the damaging effects not only to Earth, but even to the other dimensions surrounding other Earth dimensions, that ripple exactly. out into the domain of other planets. Yeah, we this, don't think about that. You know, if people do their their history homework on this, the whole Space Brother movement, all the messages from the so-called Venusians and all the messages were stop the nuclear, stop the nuclear, you're going to destroy yourselves. It was mainly nuclear. Today we have like climate change and other right, things. Right. But in those days, it was about... You people have opened a Pandora's box. So would you please, you know, make that the one and only. Right. But the problem with with that is then you have an arms race and then we're playing a chess game. And the only way that you can win is stalemate. Sadly, uh, because of the yeah. ego structure of human There's beings. There's no way of winning no. a nuclear uh, no. war against each other. I mean, you can checkmate. I mean, it, you can checkmate. I have them. You have them. I have Which many is where we've been for 70 just, years. And 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 it, today in 2023, we need to look at what this means. We do. So the blast happened. Then we did it for real. Okay, the atomic bomb over Hiroshima, hydrogen bomb over Nagasaki. Competing forces in the world of science wanting to show their prowess. You know, great awards were given, but behind the scenes, Oppenheimer. There's that very famous clip from him that states that he has become a destroyer. I am I am become the destroyer, right? From the Bog of Worlds. From the Bhagavad Gita. It was a quote from the uh, excerpt from the Bhagavad Gita. But nonetheless, that's how he felt inside his own soul on this. But the part extending from that now, what happens in the interim from the time of Hiroshima Nagasaki until the time they issue this letter to Truman? So we're talking about August 6th, August of 1945 to June of 1947. What happens in the interim regarding visitations on Earth, etc.? Well, first of all, at that time, and I have to talk about Trinity in this, they they didn't, uh, I'm guessing they brought the, uh, the craft to Los Alamos. And since there's no Blue Book and there's no Air Force and Army separately, because they joined later on, it's the Army Air Force to clean that up. Um, they weren't sure what they had. And then you get Kenneth Arnold, who's in 1947. That gets even trickier because he's the one that coined the the, uh, the phrase um, flying saucer. And then you have Roswell in July of 1947. So 1947 has become the year that supposedly marks the beginning of the UFO era. But also the intelligence era. There was an intelligence gathering operation. It changed names from one thing to another at that time. Mm-hmm. What was it again? You mean the CIA? Yeah, yeah, the CIA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Colonel Corso talked right. about that in his books, the intelligence. A lot of the uh, intelligence gathering yeah. really was centered around what happened as a result of the atomic explosions. Oh, absolutely. And E.T. Visitations. visitations. Well, you know, the ET visitations, I mean, that's not, it, it doesn't, you know, take a rocket scientist to figure out that if we are being visited, we have caused attention in the in the universe. And then if you start following the UFOs over nuclear facilities and look at the Maelstrom Air Force Base 1969 event, and it was two events, Oscar and Echo event, mm-hmm. where they shut down the missiles one by one by one, then, then somebody is interested in the Someone is interested in our ability to destroy ourselves. 
Um, and I'm not going to make comments around that because some people look at that as an act of war and some people look at that as an act of peace. So I see it, it as an act of peace. If we're not smart enough to disinvolve ourselves with that, at least someone is. So I don't mind a little helping hand. If it's <laughs> going to keep us from blowing each other up. Personal, well, personally, I'm okay with I that. I agree, but see. But let's talk about Maelstrom for a moment for people that don't know about yeah. that event. And uh, Robert Solis talks about this a great deal. Let's talk about what happened that day because it scared the poo out of everybody. In Montana, um, you know, I interviewed Robert Salas. He basically said he was in a bunker under the um, the facility and there were 10 missiles pointed. And we were pointing, it was a Cold War. So we're pointing right. missiles at Russia and Russia is pointing missiles at us. Uh, and you hope there's no mistakes. So, uh, you know, all at once this big red fireball came across the uh, the area and he said everybody that was on the surface all the you know the uh, military guys that were on the surface with the rifles there just freaked themselves out because they it was over the the missile silos the nuclear missile silos yeah so it's big yes. things hovering there and so, everyone's scared and then, and then it went and then everything went down one you know one at a time each missile was shut down yeah one at a time and then within a week they were back up so you this is why it's not an act of war if they want to they would have destroyed the missiles. However, what was interesting, I've asked Robert in the later years, I said, did you get any message? And he said, in my head, they said, we can shut you down. Mm-hmm. I said, you heard that in your head? And he said, yes. And he said, and of course, Robert did a lot of disclosure. This is what, you know, I don't understand. He did a lot of disclosure. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very interesting because uh, he he was at the citizen hearing and talked about yes, this. He was in Washington. It was at the original disclosure yes, in D.C. So we've had disclosure. That's, that happened a long time ago. It happened a while ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the 2000s. I mean, that was real. That wasn't, you know, just a, a simple thing. So looking at this and then the fact that they activated the codes in Russia, and that must have been scary. Yeah. Uh, and they have also appeared uh, over nuclear facilities. Yes. Uh, I interviewed Jean-Charles Dubuc who's a French pilot with Air France. Uh, in Europe, I interviewed him, and he told me that in his Air France airplane that all the people saw the UFO, and I said, where was it? And he said it was over a nuclear facility. Yes. Because, I mean, I don't think it's just hanging out. Yeah. And so if you start doing where a lot of these sites, even Stephenville, there's a nuclear facility in yes. Texas. yes. So if you start putting together, connecting the dots. You see they hang out around nuclear facilities so, so and, and military bases where development's going on. Right. So, I mean, what's what's surprising about this? Yeah, there shouldn't be anything surprising about it, except for people who still think some we're the only intelligent, quote, intelligent species in the universe. I, I don't think we need to argue that one too much. But so the point being that they've come and there have been also stories that there were some kind of errant shots fired across the bow that were essentially neutralized. And then we have that uh, one out of Air, uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, that shot right. to the moon, and that was captured on film. Right. I've seen the film. I saw that originally at Disclosure. You know, Robert Hastings did a lot on that. He did, but wasn't that film the one that was actually used in Project Blue Book? 
on the History Channel in the slightly fictionalized version of all this, they showed that. I think that was the original film. Well, the original film is out there. Yeah. And and the thing is that there again, it's your interpretation. So the military are looking at it as hostile. And And I'm saying, yay, good for you. (laughs) They had a warhead on it. They're trying to shoot a warhead to the moon. Oh, yeah. That's hostile. No, that's hostile. That's us. No, that's us. And then Project Horizon in the day after Roswell, Colonel Corso talks about the testing of an atom bomb on the moon. And I'm going, are, are we crazy? <laughs> so what happened was, I think it was either 14 or 16,000 miles an hour. They could see after they shot this off and everybody's at Command Central watching. And it's like, what, what? And some object comes up keeping pace with the missile, which was at that speed by then. And it shows it going around it. Boom, 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 boom gone, neutralized. It never made its destination to the moon. But you know, one of the things that I wonder about is that these are obvious messages, mm-hmm. which, you know, okay, so, and and we're not listening, obviously, because look where we are today. Are they ever going to let one go through just to teach us a lesson? You know, I'm wondering about this just on a personal level, because it, we're talking about some of the cases, but there's a lot more that, that we are not talking about here of warnings about what we're doing. This stuff is serious, and I want to bring it back to you. I mean, we will eventually get to what they, what Einstein and Oppenheimer wrote here, but there was this was this was really scary stuff. You were in Rome, okay? This is I'm referring to the what was Giandronic? Giandronic. I oh, don't know how to pronounce okay. his name. What happened with you oh, regarding yeah. documents? On the H bomb. Okay, tell us what happened to you. First of all, if you remember Oppenheimer for the people, Teller was arguing with Oppenheimer that the bomb wasn't strong enough, so he was going to go off and do the H bomb. Yeah. The thermonuclear bomb. And so what happened is when I happened to be in Italy and I lived there from 94 to 2007, I saw one of the witnesses at our local UFO meeting, Giandronik, who was on the island of Fangatofa in the Pacific. He was on the island of Fangatofa, and he was part of H-bomb tests, which are much more powerful than the atomic bomb. And this stuff's being shot off on these tiny islands and in the ocean. And the ocean. Our oceans. Our oceans. And he came, he was testifying, and he's very brave, uh, that he um, was present on two occasions because he said France did 800 H-bomb tests in the Pacific. And I'm going... That's just France. How many did we do? And India, I know, did a few. And and he said there were three uh, feet of dead fish on the runway each every time they do it, and they would and they kill coral until Greenpeace came along with their boats and stopped, you know, and protested that. He said on two occasions UFOs flew over the runways, three green um, balls of light. He said he jumped on an airplane with the other military people. They followed them and all the equipment on the airplane froze and they were afraid for a minute. But when the UFOs went over the horizon, they regained their power and were able to land. Now, if these UFOs that are flying over the H-bomb testing are giving us a message and they're not shooting us and saying, what are you doing to your oceans and what are you are you people crazy then people need to look at that because he protested. He came out because he had a daughter that was deformed and he had a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And so I got him to come to my house and I said, 
you need to tell the world this is H-bomb and, and you were present and UFOs flew over and they didn't do anything on two occasions you saw them. And you're having some damage to DNA in the, your family. Absolutely. Yeah, That's yeah. why he was angry. Yeah, That's yeah. why he was angry. So what happened was while I was filming him and I was a little nervous at the time. So I called a friend of mine who worked for customs agents and in, um, in Italy and he came to, you know, he was like my Mulder and I was like the Scully. <laughs> and then we finished the taping and then we went to uh, have pizza in a restaurant with his wife, with Guy's wife. We came back. They had gone home. I saw the door of my apartment open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, the, the guy, Antonello, that worked with me had a gun because he, he was a policeman for the customs. And he pulled out the gun. And he says, there's somebody in your apartment. And I thought it's going to shoot somebody. I mean, knock on all the doors because we're not just, you know, doing it, you know, at random. My door is open. And I knocked on the doors and said, look, uh, you know, I've been broken into. Please be witness to what happens. They had jumped over the balconies in my apartment. I was on the seventh floor. That's how they got in. They left the door open, but they took the film footage. They took his computer my computer, uh, all I have three digital cameras at the time, but they also bought, took my mother's fur coat, jewelry, and so forth. It was 20,000 euro worth of material that they stole. And somebody didn't want us to talk film that. that. And, yeah. and, and this is in Rome. And talk about it, because if you really sit down and look at this, it's darn serious. Was there another instance, too, as I recall, where you had there was some kind of blast in front of your apartment? Oh, when I was doing the Michael Wolf case, I had two car bombs go off in front of my apartment on two separate occasions. And he worked. uh, The Michael Wolf case is extremely interesting. He was a remote viewer with a stubble bind group, had done the Achille Loro case and a lot of the of the Red Brigade cases he had remote viewed. And I had been one of the only journalists that covered that case. But evidently, when you're doing something that um, disrupts the status quo, especially with intelligence people, Michael had worked for for the CIA and, and had been an agent. And when you're working with this, and it was very important for me to go to the source, like a Guillain-Dronique that worked with H-Bomb. Right. But I didn't realize, I think I didn't realize until I saw the movie Oppenheimer that the mentality here is, yeah, we made an A-bomb, let's make something stronger. Yeah. yeah. So now where are we was today? Competition. Yeah, but where are we today? What's stronger than the H-bomb? Like, are, is this thinking still on Earth? You know, there's the H-bomb, like, what else are well, we doing? Well, that people in certain countries still threaten to go nuclear I mean, this seems, this is such a worn out old story that should have been put to rest the day of the original blasts in 1945. We should have never, ever considered this technology again. But you still have all of these silos, all of these capabilities. Drones can drop them for heaven's sakes, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, we actually, what I call shot ourselves in the foot because there's no getting off this. I mean, if people start, if everybody's having a competition for nuclear or, or other exotic weapons, then, then how do we get off this, this, this race, this arms race or whatever? But the thinking of the scientists in that film, 
the sitting down and dialoguing yeah. that they did really interested me because I had covered me too. Yeah, I had covered the uh, you know the Oppenheimer and, and and Einstein was in the film too. Uh, he, he was quite quite prominent as an advisor and friend to Oppenheimer. Absolutely, at Princeton. Yes, you have to remember. And so, what 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 secret stuff is going on that's dangerous? And don't we look at the the repercussions? I don't think Oppenheimer was really happy that it it was tested on, and it wasn't tested on two cities. He, mm-hmm. he thought one would have been enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of thinking is crazy. Yeah. So they he and he and Albert were concerned, mm-hmm. and so here we are now. This is about a, roughly a month before Roswell. Okay. And you've done a tremendous amount of research. You did a companion to Day After Roswell, the Philip Corso's book, right? Lieutenant yeah, Colonel actually, it was, it was his original manuscript. It's called The Dawning of a New Age. The Dawning of a New Age, because yeah. Uh, the uh, the the day after Roswell is co-written. It's got a co-author, and right. and and so uh, when he came to Italy, Corso wanted the original manuscript uh, that we would print, and and people can have access to that. Yes, and and that that I highly recommend that people read both of those books. I found them both fascinating, in terms of what kind of technology was seeded at least in America. We also had Germany and other places around the planet where this technology was seeded through crashes. So here it is a month before the Roswell crash, but well after the events of World War II. And so this letter's written, it says top secret across the top. Uh, the name of the document is called Relationships with Inhabitants of Celestial Bodies. They call them celestial and you go through and they set up why they're writing the letter. But one, there, there's much in this that's fascinating. Can people find it on your site? Where do they find it? Do they have to go to no, MG Bob Wood? No, Bob, MG uh, Ryan Wood's site has it. But yes. if they want to email me, I'll be glad to give it to them because I think it... It puts it in a context of history, and they and the fact that it's written in July before Roswell, I mean in June, June. in June before Roswell means what it means is there were other crashes before that. Yeah, and, and you're and, aware of and those. And they're You've having a problem, them. and they're having a problem trying to decide what to do. So this is their, This was one of the suggestions. Another possibility. They've gone through some possibilities. Um, if peaceful cooperation isn't an issue. Another possibility may exist that a species of Homo sapiens might have established themselves as an independent nation on another celestial body in our solar system and evolved culturally independently from ours. Obviously, this possibility depends on many circumstances whose conditions cannot yet be foreseen. However, we can make a study on the basis of which such a thing might have occurred. So looking at some evolved humans from elsewhere that come back here and and are concerned, don't do this. Don't do this. What are you people doing? It's going to get worse. Yes. (laughs) And okay, now we continue down page two a little further. And the top of this part says, now we come to the problem of uh, determining what to do if the inhabitants of celestial bodies or extraterrestrial biological entities desire to settle here. Okay? <laughs> okay. That's a problem. Yeah, we've, and they're saying, hey, we brought this on ourselves. We drew this attention to right. ourselves by creating this destructive, reckless technology. Right. Now we're having to live with it, so let's make a plan. Here it says, 
a superior form of colonizing will have to be conceived that could be a kind of tutelage, possibly through the tacit approval of the United Nations, Nations. right? Yeah. But would be the but would be the United Nations. But would the United Nations legally have the right of allowing such tutelage over us in such a fashion? So here they're talking about overt colonization of wiser species and how do we welcome them, learn from them, and live alongside them till we can get our you know what together. Well, yeah, these are two scientists. Remember that that this are, is Oppenheimer and Einstein, Einstein yeah. writing to President yeah, Truman. These are two scientists who are using logic, thank God, and they're saying, okay, well, we got to deal with this. And then part of that also says we have to create another United Nations called the Supra. Yes, yeah, a, a Supra United Nations. I'm looking at the United Nations today. And I'm looking how they handle like, how they handle <laughs> how do they handle what's happening right now? Yeah, not and then well. we're and then we're going to have ETs coming down, and then they have to handle that too, and, and and there is no structure or a way of dealing with this. That I mean, you could create a supra United Nations, but we don't have the maturity to even choose the players. And not only that, we just had like disclosure with the New York Times. It just came out that this is real. Otherwise, it's all been science fiction up until now. Right. So this so letter, here we have these. So they're really, truly, earnestly thinking they have enough clout, enough position that it will make it before President Truman. So what happens then? Well, they, they're very logical about delineating all the problems. And they said this came, they actually say this came out of our testing of the atomic bomb. Yes, they were very the, clear they, about they're, it. They're very, they're very clear that they were being surveilled. Yes. And there are other photos. And they had clearance. There. They knew this. Yeah. And they had, and, and they have other photos. Regina, there's photos out there uh, of each, of uh, ships over that area mm-hmm. right around this time, apart from the one that we're, we're going to show. But um this this was concerning them because they were looking at it as um, inclusive, and yes. I, and it's the same problem we have today with the congressional hearings because they're they're looking at how are they looking at it as a national security issue? Do we have to develop exotic weapons to go That's after them? More money, more or all that stuff. Yeah. So the problem that we're having today with the discussions are relate to the problem that Einstein and Oppenheimer are talking about in this letter in 1947. Let's go to the photo you just mentioned, because I meant to go to it a little bit ago. This is very interesting. Who was this photo? Who who took this series of photos? Because I understand there were several cameras. Right. And Seven this cameras. only came up on one, one of the cameras. Right. And... First of all, it's a very different kind of photography that's almost photographing in nanoseconds. Exactly. And that's why they brought it in for this blast, to see second, well, nanosecond by nanosecond, how it was building. And so I don't know how many frames this was in, but you see here on the lower left, there is this kind of, it looks like, Bell Bell, it looks like Bell Rock in Sedona, actually. It's a Bell craft. It's, it's a, a Bell it's craft. It's very much like the Adamski craft, uh, you know, with the... That was visiting regularly, speaking of In 1953. This. Yes. Because yeah, that was when he was, you know, uh, cautioned by Orthon to stop the nuclear mm-hmm. and to be an ambassador and go to the kings and queens and everybody and say, stop this. 
But this looks like the Adamski craft, uh, the Bell craft, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just sitting there. And Watching the, the, the atomic the, blast. The atomic blast, which is the little part on the bottom, but yeah. all of the repercussions or what happened in the atmosphere is that big circle. So yeah, it was just it's huge. It's a shocking, yeah, interesting. Huge. I, I have another document that tells about the name of that kind of camera, which I don't have on me right now, but people can. Um, it's a real camera. It's a real photo, and it comes out of Europe. And, right. And it, it came to the offices, uh, and I know who sent it to, because I know the researchers in Europe mm-hmm. that found it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did incredible research on the atomic uh, maybe because of the movie or so forth. And it came out of the offices of Jaime Maussan when I was down there. And he said, you want to see this picture that came from these people that I know very well in Europe? He said, it's one of seven cameras that were on the... And it's very obvious that it's it's a bell-shaped craft that's sitting there watching. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not in any of the other... No, it's not in any of the other shots. Uh, bar- uh, shots. No, so it just was there. It, it blinked there. in and blinked out. Oh, right, exactly. So it's just... We're assuming, we're making an assumption. This is an example of exactly what we're talking about. They're very concerned, and they're watching this blast at Trinity. Yes, and I think whoever, you know, and and there's a website around these cameras. Whoever was looking at this image must have had some kind of discussion, apart from the, the fact that there are other photos of UFOs over the blast that Einstein and Oppenheimer knew about. Yeah, they had that kind of clearance. They yeah, wouldn't know. They, they would know. I mean, of course they knew. They knew everything that happened in that area. And if, if Trinity happened, it happened one month later when some in of the Russia. Manhattan, yeah, and, and it's like four miles away from the Al Barn Cafe. How could the, um, uh, Oppenheimer not know? Right. I mean, so we have this bit of evidence that's obscure and interesting. And if people contact you, you can give them oh, yeah, the, the documents, the yeah. name of the photographer, and so forth. Yeah. So now we get back to this document that goes on and on. It's six pages right. of all these different scenarios about humanity ultimately is probably going to need to have relations with extraterrestrials in an open, collaborative way. Eventually. And we, eventually. Yes. And we would be the students. Well, that's the, the how they phrased it. Yes. Yeah. And so here it says, myself and General Marshall have read this, and I must admit there is some logic, but I hardly think the president will consider it. <laughs> For the obvious reasons, I understand Oppenheimer approached Marshall while they attended, it's hard to read, something at. As I understand it, Marshall rebuffed the idea of Oppenheimer discussing this with the president. It's signed okay. by Van Var Bush. Uh, you now you can name? understand why. Now think yeah. about this. So what <laughs> follows? Okay. So the next president we have, right, is, is Eisenhower. It's Eisenhower. And who is warning of the military-industrial complex. complex. This is military. And military is saying, what a stupid idea. We need to stay in competition and keep developing our warring methods and technologies. And it's keeping the military industrial complex going. Comments on that, because by rejecting this, no, who knows what, who yeah, knows what Truman that, would have said. But the point is, they didn't even let him see it. 
No, they didn't let them see it, but it's very hard for even the military or anybody to wrap their mind around it. Right now, even with what we've got is, is disclosure, we're talking about Tic Tacs and we're talking about craft. Nobody has opened the door except now during the hearings about what's inside or who's inside. It's easier for them to talk about the actual machinery and everything than what is inside and and whether it be you know an artificial intelligence a drone or some kind of uh you know being from another planet i mean it's all the above it's we don't touch that it's funny that oppenheimer and einstein they were philosophers that. though these men they had deeply philosophical they were scientists with deeply philosophical minds and we're concerned with the philosophical implications for the future of humanity. And so, I mean, it was very intelligently and thoughtfully written because this, these are these are the kind of people we need to be listening to. <laughs> Philosophers that can see the repercussions, extension of our actions. Yeah, they're, they're physicists and scientists. They're not military guys. They're not military guys. No. So now we go on, Truman's out, right? And when right. Eisenhower's in, now Eisenhower's on his way out saying, Holy cow, people, beware of the military-industrial complex because they're running the whole show. But I also think uh, that Eisenhower had a meeting at Holloman. I do. Okay, talk I, about yeah. this because <laughs> I know that I know. I interview, Well, my book, talk Connecting about, the Dots, yes. has the exact um, uh, uh, testimony of, of Kirkland, who was there. Uh, and he say where you have to create a frame around this. He was at Holloman Air Force Base. He was called in. He said that uh, that Eisenhower uh, evidently he disappeared, and they said he he had gone to a to dentist to take care of his teeth. But if you watch the the Ebenezer movie. Um, UFOs past, past, present, and future, Robert Menager said that, you know, this is a long story, that they were promised footage to do a disclosure documentary. But I've seen the, the documentary, um, and it, it, I saw it like it, when it had the title, It Has Begun. And in the documentary, there's Rod Serling with Jacques Vallée, Burgess Meredith, and they're talking about a hypothetical meeting of Eisenhower with these beings but they have like an an eight second uh, piece of film that's real that that of of a craft coming down at Holloman, which is in New Mexico, and and, and was Eisenhower said to have been there at that yes. moment. And Kirkland told me he was there, uh, that they had been pulled in the cafeteria. Which, considering everything be going on, of course that would not be out of the question for other species to want to connect with the more powerful people in the world. So let's say let's say. Give well, him the benefit of the doubt. What if he had met with them? What was this speech that has become so famous about? Beware of the military-industrial complex. Well, you know, when you have a crash of any kind, you have technology, and you're not going to throw it in the trash. You're going to try to figure out how you can copy it or back-engineer it and so forth. Day after Roswell, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. it's logical. Yeah. Now, of course, those Army, but Air Force started mm-hmm. way back before the Army, mm-hmm. and, and, we, and the Navy's in charge of UFOs. So the the thing that we have is a very interesting uh, scenario where, and, and I have to follow Eisenhower too, because Eisenhower wrote a letter to one of our contactees, Aradamski, and I have that letter. They gave it to me. His name was Genio Siracusa. He was on the island of Sicily. So when I was, I was, and he was Aradamski. The Italian Adamski. Yes, because he met with people from Venus who had the same Now first message. we have to say. 
Adamski is said to have been taken by beings from Venus up in ships, shown a lot about the nature of how space travel works, the future, uh, what's happening on Earth, what we're evolving into. He was shown a great deal in their books written by Oh, yeah, no, Adamski, uh, when he had his meeting with Orthon at... uh, you know, at Desert Center, he was with five people. And, and not only that, but now it's coming out that there's even a photograph of Orthon. There's a new book out. Right. So he was getting all of this from Venusians. Venusians. And so was, So your guy in Italy. It was from Venusians. Yes. Now, whether they came from Venus or not, I'm not going to even go there. Right. But, but that's they, what they, they looked. They looked the same. Mm-hmm. The message was the same. And President Eisenhower wrote to Sirakusa and said, and it's got his name, it's got his signature, and it said, um, Mrs. Eisenhower and I will try our best to try to um, uh, to try to to work with this situation of peace. And I'm wondering why would he write to an Italian contactee who doesn't even speak English, probably, who did the very same thing as Adamski. He went to all the leaders of Europe at that time Mm -hmm. with the warnings. Mm -hmm. So in the 1950s, 1953 to 60s, we were warning the world of the dangers of nuclear. Uh, And whether it was Adamski, Menger, uh, and all the people at Giant Rock, you know, the Giant Rock crew, or it was, Mm. uh, you know, our guy in in Sicily, somebody should be connecting dots here. I mean, you can't make this up. You're Uh, connecting dots, Paola. (laughs) And then I want to say you and I are both fans of the work that was coming out in the 50s and the 60s from these contactee gentlemen. Yes, they were people that explained what was going on. It was done just like the films you see about people in the 50s. It was done. Even the bad guys were gentlemanly in these films. So this is a very gentlemanly type of contact in which they explained what was being shown to them regarding the health of the human body. For example, Menger, his book, many things was it called from Earth to You. Um, from outer space, to outer space to you, and it was that they live yeah. longer than we do. And they explained why, yeah. and they talked about the best way to, to eat and so forth. And so there's a lot of different kind of information that was coming through the these 50s. contactees all through the 50s, and we're big fans of that. I find it much more intriguing than someone talking about a tic-tac kind of darting <laughs> through space and do we need to build more weapons? What are the real messages? And we're almost out of time, so... Tell us in your own mind, from having read all of it and writing the Connecting the Dots book, what do you think is the most important thing for us to focus on in this whole big mess called ufology? Well, all the interviews are in, in UFOs Connecting the Dots, uh, and I've in their word-for-word interviews. The, the thing is that we're not independent. We are one. When Edgar Mitchell had his epiphany, out in outer space, he looked at the earth and he said, I want to tell the people in Congress and the people in the world, there are no boundaries. So why are we killing each other over boundaries? So, and God bless Edgar Mitchell, because we are one human species. We have had contact. I've always wondered if they were going to be official about it, what country would they go to? And what I saw was they may not go from the top down. They may go to the regular uh, citizen of the planet that's which a is what's species. happening 
people yeah. shooting all these different things with their cameras saying, exactly. wow, what the heck they're is gonna that? They're going to go from the bottom up yeah. for disclosure because they're going to go and talk to the average citizen that doesn't represent any ideology, any religion, any any boundaries. Right. And that's where we have our problem today in 2023. We need to get back to we are one species. If there is contact, we got to do it like Oppenheimer and Einstein suggested logically. Logically, collaboratively, and peacefully. Exactly. Thank you, Paula. What is, the t- is it called Connecting the Dots? Is that Connecting the, the Dots, making sense of the UFO phenomenon. Yes, because you're, to me the most impressive boots on the ground UFO researcher up there, period. <laughs> I know a lot of guys have a lot of their name up there and bigger than yours, but, no, but you're the one for the me. Work. So it's about the work and you do the work. the work. So thank you, Paula. No, thank you. <laughs> Again, to find out more about the ramp up to the dropping of the atomic bomb, you can read Paula's book, Trinity, and watch the film Oppenheimer and also read Connecting the Dots. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, Rainbird, what do you say to that? (laughs) I have an update to that. You do? I do, because yesterday, Cash said that it would be within a week, and I don't think much more than a week if that happens, that um, Iran will announce that they have a 25 megaton bomb. Nuclear? Yes. Oh, did you hear that, Rama? Mm. Huh? Sort of. Say it again, Sam. Say it again, Sam. Rayburn. Next week we'll be announcing that they have a 25 megaton bomb, which is 12 times bigger than any, the H-bomb. Oh, Iran. Nuclear bomb. Iran. Well, that's Next week. Yeah, I mean, they don't need to detonate it, but yeah. Yeah, well, he called it a peace bomb. Yeah. He called it a peace bomb? Uh-huh. Yes. Because you can't... Yeah. Meaning that, that they challenged the uh, superpowers to having it, so nobody's going to do... Nobody's going to do nothing about that. That's, that. Well, they'll do something about that, which is maybe stop their crap. Stop their what? Stop their warring. There, what, Rama? You talked over Raid Bird. Oh, okay. <laughs> the 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 superpowers will stop their threats. Is that what you said? Right, right. Yeah. Good for yeah. you, Iran. <laughs> yeah. Well, I consider that an update for 2024, and that's my word for the night. Thank you for everything you presented. And I know TJ probably wants to go to bed at some point. Yeah, like now. <laughs> <laughs> so I pass this talking stick back to you. Thank you. You got something, Mama? You want to? Really... Can you say say something that everybody can hear? I didn't get anything really. Yeah, well, what do you got to say from your heart? Just that what Paulo Harris was saying that um, 
it's time for all of us to come together other under the banner of love and peace and peace and i think i figure out how our third eye works so we don't have to get weird with each other because <laughs> <laughs> people do have many different ways of interacting and um yes i i don't think uh i think the world wants peace yeah and as the world wants peace Nasara can be inactive. All right, Nasara now, and we'll take a little winter's nap, and we'll see you this afternoon with another group of tales to tell. Yeah. Okay. All right, TJ, we love you too, and aloha, everyone. Namaste. <laughs>